get your family vehicles ready for summer driving with early Memorial Day deals at Dobbs. Click on GoToDobbs.com for money, saver retire, and service deals today. Dobbs. With 43 locations, real deals are always close by. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Time now for the BK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. Quick throw. Tony's got it. Tony walks in. Touchdown, Kansas City. It's coming. Mahomes. Man wide open. Touchdown, Chiefs and Skymore. As all day, now some rushers come. Going to throw it as far as his arm can take it, which is well short. And the Kansas City Chiefs have won Super Bowl 57. Hey, alongside Alex Ferrario and Tanner Hendrickson, I'm Brandon Kiley. It was a beautiful day in St. Louis, Missouri last night. Patrick Mahomes, the first player in NFL history to win multiple championships and multiple MVPs within his first six seasons. And I, for one, am very excited to be on the radio with you guys to celebrate this morning. 314-399-9646 is the air comfort service text line to get involved in the show of we'll questions and answers coming up at 1145. Alex, listen. I'm not going to come on here and act like I knew that this was going to happen or anything, but some of us predicted that this game would be a shootout. It would be going over the point total. Let me guess, he pulled that audio so we can all be reminded of how and great he was. the Chiefs would find a way to come out on top. It was a glorious, glorious night. And in all seriousness, that's as good of a, a well, as well quarterbacked of a football game as you will see. Both quarterbacks were spectacular last night. I had legitimate questions on Jalen Hurts going in. That guy played his ass off, dude. He was so good last night. And any questions that whether you're a Philly fan, a neutral observer, or a Chiefs fan, any questions that anybody had about Jalen Hurts were all answered last night in the affirmative. And that dude, whatever the contract is that the Eagles are going to give him this offseason, he earned every penny of it with the way that he performed last night. The only problem for him, because every other team in the history of the Super Bowl that scored at least 35 points, they won. His team did not because their defense wasn't able to get stops. Alex, your biggest takeaway from last night's Super Bowl was what? It was the quarterback play. I mean, that was, we'll get into this later, that was as exciting of a Super Bowl game that I can remember in a long time. And then on top of it, I was the same as you. I still did not believe that Jalen Hurts was that franchise quarterback. I associated it to the roster around him. I associated it to them being able to acquire an A.J. Brown and Jalen Hurts just benefited from the scenario he was in. That changed last night. The amount of placements that he was putting the ball in, the amount of catches that his team was able to make from the throws that Jalen Hurts was doing under pressure and then on top of it to score three touchdowns and use that quarterback sneak as a secret weapon. It was an impressive all around game and, a, and an exciting game. I, I told you Friday when we were leaving Send team, 
I always feel like Super Bowls, at least recently, underwhelm because I'm expecting so much. I'm expecting that offensive back and forth. I'm expecting that excitement. And then it's let down because you don't get it from both sides. I mean, last season was that way where, sorry, T-Bone, the Rams were an exciting well, I, I part of the team. last year was pretty good. But I was expecting more Cincinnati push and not that this was it. This was back and forth the entire game. It had one team that looked like they were winning. It had all of the drama with Patrick Mahomes. How many different lead changes were there last night? It had to have been like 10 over the course I of mean, that game. Philadelphia didn't punt until what? the fourth quarter that and, was the first time they punted and, and in the second half. half the chiefs touchdown 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 and then yeah. game-winning field goal was there four drives in the second we half. saw I mean, Patrick it's, Mahomes it's as good as it gets we man. saw Mahomes do his best LeBron James and act like he was injured so people doubted him <laughs> so on, I mean it, gave you it, did happen. it felt like I was watching the uh the bold and the beautiful out there I I couldn't believe how good Jalen Hurts was in that game that, was, that awesome. was one of my biggest he was unbelievable running the football some of those throws he made were just perfect and you've only got that slight window that you can fit that football in that throw and to he, Dallas Goddard that was unbelievable it was one of the best throws that I've seen I, by anybody all season props to Dallas Goddard too for making some of those catches because I just assumed he was just like one of those throw-in tight ends no he's a good player no that guy is catching some passes he and I'm still not sure that he actually caught that one but I don't care it's neither here nor there uh, it, it, well, it, there it is. It deserved to be really after a victory. You're going to worry about that. No, not and again. Replay review confirmed it. I'm pretty sure <laughs> it did. It deserved to be ruled a catch for how good that throw was. Like I was, I, I don't know how anybody could have been mad. It was what third and 11 on that play or something. Yeah. And it, it's just a perfect play. The, I, the I placement was outstanding. I love the fact that that's a Super Bowl and Nick Sirianni's coaching method was fourth downs or third downs, boys. We're yeah. just going. <laughs> Like even Greg Olson said, they treat third downs like second downs. And you saw a lot of that with their play calling. They finished 11 for 18 on third down in the game. I wish two more teams for did two that. on fourth down, but it was really three for three because the one that they, they didn't count, it was the offsides yeah. on Derek Nottie. Yeah. So they ended up effectively going 14 for 18 on third slash fourth down, which is just, I mean, Unbelievable! Someone, that, that's impossible. You can never do that in a game. Someone texted in Air Comfort Service text line 314-399-9646. If you guys don't believe in the hype of Jalen Hurts, go back and watch him at OU. That's fine, but I saw Jalen Hurts last season before he kind of found a way to turn it on, and there were still questions surrounding him. He erased all of those this season. Yeah, he, he was great. And he was legitimately in the MVP conversation for the vast majority of the season before the injury. And then what I loved about what you saw from him yesterday, because I, I didn't think you ever really saw anything out of Jalen Hurts in the first two games of the postseason. Agreed. They, they weren't real. Like they were fake playoff games that this, they could have scored whatever they wanted to against both of those teams. In this one, he was pushed. The Chiefs pushed the Eagles to have to play a game plan that they prefer not to play. They were pushing the ball down the field regularly. They were, I, I mean, it, that looked like a real quarterback game. Yeah. That looked like a, we need you to have an alpha game tonight. And if you don't have your A plus game, we have no chance to win. And he, he, he basically gave it to him other than one fumble, bad fumble. He was he was damn near perfect in the game. And it it just so happened that he went up against Patrick Mahomes. And sometimes you go up against one of the best to ever do it. And that's what happened last night. Yeah. And, and his defense last night, that was my biggest thing last night, because we talked about it going into the Super Bowl on Friday was how is the Kansas City Chiefs line going to hold up against that Eagles pass rush? It did pretty well last night. It, to me, it was not a major issue. There were a couple Zero times. Sacks. Yeah, there was a couple times where the pocket collapsed. But Mahomes, even with his limited uh 
maneuverability. Mobility. Uh, mobility. You got it. Did you just say maneuverability, like manure? Yeah, well, we faked an injury. We can. We That's can true. Call he, it did, that, right? he did act but like he was hurt. I, I, I couldn't believe how easy the Chiefs' offense made it look against that Eagles' pass rush because, like, I, I thought he was going to be under pressure all night long, and they weren't there. It was kind of non-existent, and, and really, they didn't do that great a job against the run either. Pacheco had a really good second half. He was what, a he big driving for like force. Eighty something, eighty, ninety yards. Yeah, he was a big driving force in both of those touchdown drives where he was getting off the left edge, and and then McKinnon I think broke a couple on there too. But I I couldn't I couldn't believe how bad the Eagles' defense was against the Kansas City Chiefs because yes, I know the Chiefs are going to get there but I thought the Eagles would put up a better fight than they did. That's what we said last week. There was a real question of, all right, were the Eagles, was the Eagles defense a paper tiger? Were they the team that goes up against bad offenses and makes them look bad, which is what you should do. Because when they went up against the Lions in week one, they gave up 35. When they went up against the Cowboys, when they had their starting quarterback, they gave up 40. When they went up against the Green Bay Packers, they gave up 33. When they went up against quality quarterbacks and good overall offenses, they gave up 30 plus basically every time. And that's what we saw yesterday. What we saw yesterday was that they were more a creation of what they were a reflection of their schedule more than they were a, a legitimately elite level defense. They, I, I still think I don't want to take anything away from them because what we saw yesterday was just an offense that wasn't going to be stopped with the Chiefs. And I don't think that's a bad defense by the Eagles by any stretch of the imagination. Sometimes the best offense, though, is able to just beat your best defense. You look at that matchup between Patrick Mahomes and Jalen Hurts, both both quarterbacks under the age of 30. There was a lot that was made going into it of this quarterback matchup. Guys, now that we're coming out of it, I, I was trying to think today. We we're talking about this a little bit before the show. When was the last time that we saw a quarterback matchup like that, where you had two guys under the age of 30 that were the driving forces behind their teams being in that game or uh, behind why they would have potentially won the game. I went back and looked at every recent over the last 20 years, basically matchup of quarterbacks under the age of 30. You guys tell me if any of these match up with what we just saw yesterday. 2020 was Jimmy Garoppolo versus Patrick Mahomes. Is that on the same level of what we saw last night? No, no. 2013 Kaepernick versus Flacco. I I wouldn't put it there. It's not even close. No. 2011 Rogers versus Ben Roethlisberger. Maybe you could argue that one. That would probably be the closest one. That was a fun. That was a fun matchup. So maybe 2005 McNabb versus Brady. I think again, you could maybe put that in a similar category. Oh, This next one is where it's at right here. 2004 Jake DeLome, who was 29 years old. And it was basically the end of his career. You don't remember Jake DeLome? DeLome (laughs) Okay. Well, go back and watch the 2004 Super Bowl. You'll watch the end of Jake DeLome's career. Jake DeLome uh, fizzled away after that. Uh, That was against Brady. And then 2001, he had Trent Dilfer versus Kerry Collins, a very different NFL at that point in time. Collins, is he? Really? Oh, oh man. Well, you were one I know year Trent old Dilfer during the Super Bowl. I, I know Trent Dilfer, but mostly for his analyst work after his career. That's You're fair. one year old during that Super Bowl, so I'll give that to you. And then Kurt Warner was 29 years old in the Super Bowl against Steve McNair when McNair was 26. That's probably the closest thing to what we have seen to this, uh, this version of the Super Bowl. It, this just doesn't happen. Seeing two guys at this age that are this good this early in their careers 
it's a it's a matchup of the ages, guys. That's one that we are going to remember forever. And we'll talk later today about where the game ranked among the all time greats. Uh, but that's one when we look back 2015, whatever years from now, Tanner will remember who both Jalen Hurts and Patrick Mahomes are. But not yeah. Jake Delhomme. That was the first of yeah, potentially no. many. Uh, let's get to this. We'll answer this real quick before we get to the other side. Guys, a lot of people are wondering if this is going to be a matchup that we see again. Do you guys think that we will see a rematch next year? between these two teams. Yeah, I, I, the competition's going to be there for Philadelphia, as we saw in the NFC, and they have some big decisions to make with a lot of impactful players, but you can't deny what Jalen Hurts just did, and that offense is going to be in place along with Devontae Smith and A.J. Brown. So, yeah, I, I would say you're going to see that again. If you said over under one time in the next three years, I'd probably take the over. I think I would, too. I, I don't know if it will be necessarily next year because the Chiefs do have a gauntlet to go through or still in the AFC. Philadelphia will be interested to see how the pieces move around them in the NFC, but I do think you're going to see that Super Bowl matchup of Hurts and Mahomes again at some point. I don't know when. I wouldn't say next year. I think something will change next year, but I do think we'll see it again. I think next year's got a chance, but it is so hard to make it back. I mean, Tanner, you've yeah. seen this with the Rams. Um, it, wh- whoever your favorite team is, if you've seen them go to the Super Bowl, you know how freaking hard that follow-up season is. Guys get paid. There's a lot of decisions that have to be made for the Eagles. They're probably losing. It sounds like their offensive coordinator and Shane Steichen to the Indianapolis Colts. That's going to be tough for them to replace. He's an excellent play caller, a big part of what that offense is. Um, And things are just going to get harder when you pay Jalen Hurts. So if you don't make it back next year, the following year, Jalen Hurts cap hits going to be like 40 plus million dollars franchise tag him. And then suddenly everything about your team building philosophy has to change from there. So I, I don't know. I I would probably bet against it happening again next year, but will the Eagles and chiefs meet again at some point in these two quarterbacks, respective careers? I would probably take that. Yeah. I I think that it'll happen again because of how special Jalen hurts appears to be coming up in about 15 minutes or so. We got to talk about Tanner's favorite player, Callie Rosen. We'll get to that coming up in about 15 minutes or so. Speaking of Tanner, I think we almost fought this morning. I'm not kidding. Almost came to fisticuffs. We're going to talk about the refs. Yes, we see all of your text messages. We'll talk about it next year on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast, presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. All right, Tanner's mad. He's big mad at I'm living. I almost left the show this morning. Because in his mind, the Eagles were screwed out of a Super Bowl. Alongside Alex Ferrario and Tanner Hendrickson, I'm Brandon Kiley. The big conversation point, because this is where we are as a country, after a all-time great Super Bowl, is that, oh, but the Eagles were screwed. That wasn't a holding. It was. It was a holding call. Now, you can argue whether or not it should be called in that spot after the way that they had been calling the rest of the game. That's totally reasonable. I get it. I'm, I might even agree with you on that uh, scenario. But don't be like Michael Barkman, who went on NBC Philly after the game and said this. They get to a third and eight on the 15-yard line and an incomplete pass and call Shepard's team with a bullshit call. I mean, utter, complete bullshit is unbelievable it's inexcusable you don't make a call right then and there you don't let the game be decided by the officiating and yes it's true the officials go both ways and you got you got to rise above it i understand this is the freaking super bowl and that should never happen i'm gonna be in the car and that kids is what you call home (laughs) bias 
<laughs> Michael Parkman was very upset after the game about the what he called a BS call on multiple James times. Bradbury. Yeah, not once, but multiple times. That audio courtesy of NBC Philly. If you missed it, and I don't know how you could at this point. The play that he's referencing, third and eight, about a minute 55 left in the game. Chiefs are at the Philadelphia 15-yard line. They're driving. Juju Smith-Schuster has what is essentially a whip route. So he's going in, and then he's going to come back on his way out. As he pulls back to the to the outside, James Bradbury clearly has his arm around him. And when you make that motion as a defensive back, it's going to be called. Whether or not it's holding or not doesn't much matter. It's going to be called. It's like when an offensive tackle gets the arms up around the shoulder pads. That's going to be called holding. Whether it was or not doesn't matter. It's the appearance that's going to show that to the referees. So that's that's what happened in the play. Let's hear from James Bradbury. He's the one that was called for the penalty. Did he think that it was the right call? I mean, that's not up for my judgment. You know, I, I was hoping he would let it go, but of course, you know, he's a ref. Big game. Um, and it was it was a hold, so they called it. Okay, so James Bradbury says it was a hold. Hold Nick, on, the guy that did it yeah, he said it was a hold. He's not he's And not Tanner, mad about you're the call. still upset. Hold on, hold on. I'll give Tanner his shot, but I just want to present the other argument, just yeah. for the argument's sake. Brandon Graham, more audio on his side than mine. It, it wasn't hard to find. Uh, <laughs> Nick Sirianni, the head coach guy. of the Eagles, who lost the game, apparently because of this call, Nick Sirianni. How do you feel about getting screwed out of winning a Super Bowl? I, I know it always appears to be that. You know, it's one call that makes the. It's not. It's not what it is, right? It's no. not what it is. There's, there's there's so many plays that contribute to the the end result of the game, and and, and today they were better than we were. So the guy that did the hold yeah. and the head coach of the losing team and both said that's not said what lost that's us. not what lost it. Mm-hmm. And Tanner's still upset. You know, I, I'm being attacked. I'm done with it. We're not playing another cut because I have a well, point here. Oh, no, there's <laughs> another one on there. There's another one man. on my damn no, I don't need to hear Ryan Clark. We're good. Uh, look, you Whoa. can't make that call in that situation for me. Am I saying that's the call that ends up resulting in the Chiefs winning the Super Bowl? No, but to me, you can't make that call in that situation because the Eagles will get the football back. And to me, it robbed us of a great ending in that Super Bowl. To me, that's a kind of tacky call by the official there this is playoff football that that's one that can't be called in the playoffs if this was the regular season okay fine this is the damn super bowl i, I mean you didn't call one that was obvious in the second quarter on smith schuster across the middle smith schuster threw a tantrum on that one that was holding it was hold that one was a hold that one was clear and obvious this one is not as clear and obvious to me this one i've seen the replay 10 times i still don't think it's worth throwing a flag there is there marginal holding yes yes but is it enough to throw the flag? No, in my opinion. It's it's the Super Bowl. Let them play. And Smith Schuster didn't even react. He wasn't even looking for a call on that one. He was. My um. my biggest issue in that in that situation is it should not be thrown there because the refs did dictate the the Super Bowl in terms of okay now the game is over in terms of what does Philadelphia win the Super Bowl if that's not called. I don't know. I Probably not. They may not end up going down the length of the field. They don't have any timeouts. Who knows how that situation plays out. My biggest issue is, though, is that definitely just ended the Super Bowl right there on the spot with that call. And again, to me, it's such a ticky-tacky call that it shouldn't be called in the Super Bowl. I don't necessarily have an issue saying the Super Bowl was won because of the officials. No, I thought it was a great game, and I just felt like we got delivered a dud for an ending because of that call. To me, you can't throw a flag in that situation. It's like playoff hockey. I don't expect you to be calling those nitty-picky hooking and tripping calls. Or not tripping, but but hooking. That's the problem, though, because if it let's let's take slashing, for example, because slashing by officials is anytime the stick hits the hand of a player, they're going to call it. Even if it's a ticky 
ticky-tacky call, even if it's just a love tap. They're going to call it because that's what the rule is. I understand your sentiment of he didn't call it in the second quarter and he called it that one. That is an understandable gripe by a lot of people watching that game, but it was still a call. It was still the right call. You can decide if you want to throw it then or not. That's a personal choice, but he threw the flag because it was a call. Just like when a guy's going to get tapped on the hands, even if it's a playoff game in the third period and the power play leads to the goal, did he commit Did he commit the penalty? Then it's a penalty. See, they don't call it as much in the NHL playoff time. They they back away from those nitty-picky calls. That's the personal See, to me, decision to me, to, I The problem with the second quarter one is that was the wrong call. There should have been a flag on that one. This one, to me, is not a clear and obvious holding penalty. Yes, it is holding, but does it take him off that route? To me, yeah, no. See, it, 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 100%. He's not catching that football. That was good defense from Bradbury. You, you he don't escapes know that. that route. You, no, first of all, it's not good defense. It's a hold. Second of all, you don't know if he would have caught the ball because we weren't given the opportunity to see him catch the ball because he was held. The way that that route works, Tanner, is you're trying to get a firm push in one direction. And then as you go the other way, you are able to slip past the defender. He is not able to slip past the defender when he's holding him with both arms around him like that, like a bear hug. It's a hold. Like it's it's whether or not you want to call it in that spot. That That's a fair discussion to be had. But it is a hold in a typical spot in the game. And hold on one sec before we keep going here. I do also want to add this. It was not the only call that went against either team. There was a play earlier in the game in the third quarter where I do think Dallas Goddard got one foot down, then bobbled the football. It's on a third and eight. I think it was third and nine, maybe bobbled the football, gets the other foot down, regains control of the football, and then goes out of bounds without getting that second foot down again. In my opinion, that should have been called incomplete. They called it complete. It happens. Calls go against you. You keep going on with that drive. They ended up scoring on that drive. There was another play. Nick Bolton hits or a player hits um, the running back who's Miles Sanders. Miles had Sanders. It. Yeah, it was a throwback. And Sanders, I believe, fumbled the ball. I did too. And he ended up going and scooping and scoring on that play. Nick Bolton did. That would have been seven points for the Chiefs. Again, the Eagles ended up scoring on that drive. That's a potential 10-point swing in the game. It went against the Chiefs. I, it was a bang-bang play. I could have seen it going either way. I, I totally understood if they called it a fumble. I get it. They called it incomplete. You got to keep playing. Calls go against both teams. What's frustrating to me is that we've had the same conversation after every single round in the playoffs. Oh, the the officiating's terrible. The I thought overall the officiating was pretty darn good last night. Agreed. If you want to disagree with one call that was made at the very end of the game, so be it. The official did not determine the outcome of that game. The Chiefs scored 38 bleeping points. The first three drives that they had in the second half, they scored a touchdown on. The last drive, they ended up getting that final field goal. The Eagles didn't do enough defensively to earn the benefit of the doubt. If you end up having that call in that spot because you allowed 38 points to the opposition, I'm sorry, but them's the break sometime. It was a good call in my opinion. If you disagree with it, that's fine. There were other calls you probably disagreed with as well prior to that point. They end up basically coming out in the wash. Chiefs didn't get that juju call. That results in a punt on the next play. Then on this one, they did get the call against against Bradbury on juju, and it extends the drive. It all kind of came out in the wash, and the right team won yesterday as a result. My my biggest issue is still the timing of the call. You can't make that pen. You can't throw that flag on again. A very debate. Yes, was there holding? Okay, I get it, but it's such a marginal call in my opinion to where it is so again to me by the definition of the rule book that is a hold 
But I'm sorry, it's playoff football. There needs to be a little bit more leniency then given. What can you it's call? Like, issue, what is it right? At what point does it rise to the level of? Oh, it's the final two minutes of the game. We can't call anything now. Are they like what? What is the what is the line? I, I just think in that scenario, you can't throw a flag because. And, and look, in, in my opinion, maybe you take out the as we're talking about this going forward, a holding as five yards is an automatic first down because it, it ended up. I was about to say, are you mad at the rule or are you mad at the call? I'm mad at both. I I, I think that the one the rule now showed its ugly head of an automatic first down on a five yard holding penalty but against that's the defense. How it works because it could have been it, a touchdown. I, how do you not reward my that issue, with a first down? My issue is just the timing of it. I mean, that one. Look, I'm not okay. When I say it won the Super Bowl, I'm not saying the Chiefs didn't deserve to win the Super Bowl because of this call. What, what I'm saying is it just takes away the opportunity for the Eagles to get that chance to go down the field late. And that's my biggest issue with it is because the moment that flag was thrown on again, a call that is ticky tacky, in my opinion, it won the Super Bowl for the Chiefs because all they had to do is take a knee. I'm not saying the Chiefs didn't win, deserve to win the Super Bowl. I, I thought they were really good last night. I thought it was a 50-50 game the whole way. My biggest issue is the timing of that call, and it led to just a dud of an ending, See, and, and that's my problem. That's where I that's where I differ from you there because I actually feel like that was an all-time great game, and I think it's an all-time great game, too. It shouldn't end that way, but though. But to me, in those situations, you can say it shouldn't end like the way. Hold. Look, the Eagles shouldn't put themselves in that position. The Eagles were up. The Eagles were dominating. They had they had like double the amount of possession time in the Kansas City Chiefs. And it's not like the Chiefs were awful in the second half. And that one play gave the Chiefs the opportunity to win the game. The Chiefs came from behind by a lot. They, they were dominated. Down by 10 at halftime. They dominated that second half. And so they didn't win the game because of that call. Like the Chiefs were awful that game and the Eagles got screwed over. The Chiefs dominated and they just took advantage of a blatant call that you can decide if it is or isn't. But to me, that was a game that was exciting from start to finish, and it didn't dictate the outcome of that game. It just kind of put Philadelphia in a bad spot. But Kerry Davis said it earlier today, and I saw him post it last night. You had multiple chances to win that game if you're Philadelphia, and you didn't take advantage of it. And that play went against you, and you lose the Super Bowl. Three one four three nine 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 six four six is the Air Comfort Service text line to get involved in the show. This one comes from the 314. Guys, by not making a call in that spot, the refs are also influencing the game. A penalty is a penalty no matter when it takes place during the game. That's where I'm at, man. And if you think that it wasn't a holding and like should not be called in that spot, then I would just, I wonder what what it would take to get a call in that spot because that specific type of play is going to be called regularly, man. The way that James Bradbury grabbed him, he, he said after the game, mm-hmm. I was trying to get away with it. They ended up calling it. I got caught. It, it happens. And like, I... I just don't know what the ref is supposed to do in that spot if he sees what is a clear-cut penalty in his eyes and he he doesn't end up calling it. I, I think Mike Sando put the best comp to this situation on Twitter this morning, and I love this, and, and I'm so glad T-Bone's taking this side of it because it plays into it, although it, probably if I played into this. Uh, Mike Sando said it's like driving 65 and a 60 speed limit. Yeah, it's speeding, frequently not called, so then why are you going to call it there? But he said on the flip side of that, uh, usually the people that drive 60 in a 60 speed limit zone want guys who are driving 65 to get that parking ticket. They're the ones that are complaining. From the 618. Guys, there's total BK or KC bias on the radio right now. The Sanders call was the correct one it was an incomplete pass the goddard call was the correct one it That's was a complete pass nothing against the chiefs in that game they didn't do anything wrong but let's be real the refs definitely botched this all right if that is what i th- i think 
It's not even so much about that call or this specific discussion for me as much as it is this has become what we talk about in the NFL now. It's less about breaking down the individual matchups. It's less about breaking down how the Chiefs offensive line was able to negate the second best pass rush by sacks in NFL history in the Super Bowl. It's less about how the Chiefs completely altered their scheme and their personnel based on what happened in the Bengals game and the AFC Championship game last year to be able to win the way that they did yesterday. It's less about Isaiah Pacheco, a seventh round rookie running back coming in and putting on a unbelievable performance for the Chiefs yesterday. It's less about the punt return that Kadarius yeah. Tony had that was able to end up getting the Chiefs into situa- uh, a situation where they, they could score late in the game. Not, all of that is being put to the side because we want to have talk about a call because that's the easy thing to do. It's easy. All of us can sit there and watch that specific play and know exactly what happened and where we stand on it. That's easy. Let's break down the football again, man. We've become lazy with our analysis of what football is and what we watch on Sundays every single week because it all comes back to, yeah, but look at that bad call. No, let's let's actually discuss the football that we watched over the weekend. It's why I didn't want to open with uh, the referees today, because I think we're losing sight of what would what will go down. Honestly, will go down as one of the best Super Bowls in the history of the league. And it's being discussed as if it was a, a an ump show or a ref show. If only we got a chance to break down the Eagles two minute well, offense right now. If we're going to complain about the officials, can we complain about them ruling the Devontae Smith catch not a catch? Because that screwed me out of a parlay victory. So <laughs> thanks a lot, refs. Coming up in 15 minutes, we're getting into some questions and answers. But next, Callie Rosen, Tanner's favorite player. He's back on his game. Is he earning a role beyond just this season? We'll talk about it next year on 101 ESPN. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. Finishes it for the blue. Back to Cairo to the goal with it. Had to hand it off. Rosen again. He scores! Two in a row for Kelly Rosen. 5-2 Blues. Alongside Alex Ferrario and Tanner Hendrickson, I'm Brandon Kylie. I promise we're all friends still here on this show. Uh, debatable. I'm Brandon Kylie. It's BK and Ferrario here on 101 ESPN. T-Bone and I would like you to think that we're all still friends on this Blues show. Blues with a 6-5 to five overtime victory show, on Saturday against the Arizona Coyotes, a game that saw a lot of ups and downs for the Blues. But we're going to have to talk about that. Let's just talk about the ups for right now. 
And that's Callie Rosen, who finished the game with another two goals, Alex. And at this point in the season, he is on pace for 10 goals, 27 points. Uh, excuse me, on pace for 11 goals, oh. 24 <laughs> points, and a plus minus of tw- plus 25, which oh, is pretty baby. tough to describe given how bad this team has been so far this year. Oh, and he's doing that over the course of 52 games projected for the season. Alex, I don't even know what to say about Callie Rosen anymore. I do think that he's still a liability might be putting it on a little strong for him, but he's not the greatest defensive player, but that's okay. Given what he's given you offensively so far this year and your mind, is he carving himself a role, not just for the remainder of this season, but is he starting to convince you that he can be a part of the blues defensive core going into 2023 and beyond? Absolutely. And he should be Craig Berube even said it post game Saturday night. We played the audio he was asked the question, you know, why is it that Callie Rosen can't seem to get sustained opportunities in the lineup? Because he's been in and out of the lineup a lot. Mm-hmm. And Craig Berube said, I don't know, but we need to play him more moving forward. And that's what they're doing. They had their practice earlier this morning. Callie Rosen was on the third pair again with Tyler Tucker. Here's the issue with not having Callie Rosen or having Callie Rosen out there and not having an abortuzo in the lineup. You lose penalty killers. But Callie Rosen, who is playing the most average ice time of any NHL season. Now, granted, he's also playing the most games of any NHL season. But how he's played this season, he deserves a deeper look in certain areas. He deserves an opportunity to be on the second power play unit. He deserves an opportunity to be playing on the penalty kill to see how he is. If I'm Craig Berube and I'm Doug Armstrong and the rest of the season is an evaluation. We all know how the outcome is going to be. I'm looking at Callie Rosen as, can he be a top four defenseman for us? I'm with you. I still think there are defensive issues for him. Yeah. I wouldn't want him to be a top. Like, if they go into next season with Callie Rosen as a top four defenseman, it it should mean that they have a superstar number one defenseman. I don't know how that's happening. I got to be honest with you. Callie Rosen has been better defensively this season than Nick Letty. I think there might be some truth to that. I would put it on an even comp with he and Tory Krug because Tory Krug is good at times and has some liable situations at times. I don't think he's all that different than Tory Krug in terms of what their their playing styles are. And And that's a problem because one of them is making six million dollars more than the other. And that's why I'd be doing this and looking at this and saying, like, we need to get this guy more ice time, because if I do have an opportunity to attach draft picks and maybe make some type of mood to free up some cap space, if Callie Rosen can be a power play guy and a top four defenseman, because Tory Krug doesn't play on the penalty kill. Tory Krug's a power play guy. If Callie Rosen can be this for me then, yeah, I'd like to see what we have here in terms of depth because you've got Tyler Tucker also. I think it's another reminder of what the issue was in the last offseason. Like it, there's 25 different reminders as to what they got wrong with the Nick Letty decision. They bought in, and this is part of my concern about the Callie Rosen thing, but they bought into a short sample size, small sample size, of like slightly above average defensive play. That was way outperforming any of the underlying metrics when it comes to what Nick Letty did for the Blues last season. He was pretty good for them. He definitely helped them overcome some of their issues because of his uh, exits out of their own zone. But giving him the four-year, $4 million deal per year was too much. It was a reflection of something that wasn't real. And now you're kind of paying for those sins by not having David Perron on the roster and instead having Nick Letty. I would rather have Callie Rosen in that spot. I don't want to make the same mistake with Rosen. Now, the nice thing is he's already under contract next year for $760,000. So you're not going to double down with a big, massive contract extension for him. But I don't want to overextend what he is as a player. I think he's a really good sixth defenseman. 
And if that ends up being what he is, that's a win. He's a 29-year-old journeyman, NHL defenseman, who ended up coming in and giving you quality minutes. If that's all he is moving forward, you did well here. You found something that nobody expected you to. So that's that's where I stand on him, and I don't want to make it any more than that. It is a little concerning, though, that your other two left-handed defensemen that you're paying a combined $10 million, I think you could put his body of work up this year against either of them, and I don't think that it's a whole lot different. That's what the eye-opener should be this season for Doug Armstrong and Craig Berube. What does it say that Callie Rosen, who in any scenario is a third-pairing defenseman for a team, is playing better than our other top two defensemen on the left side? Because you have a... Forgive me if this is the improper way to use this word, but you have a glut of left-handed defensemen right now. Scott Perunovic is now doing a uh, conditioning assignment. You'll have Scandella back. You've got Tyler Tucker, who they want to see play, and you've got Krug and Letty and Callie Rosen. you got to figure out who all of these guys are because it's rare that players or teams play four or five left-handed defensemen because that lefty-righty split, you want to have a little bit of... uh, common denominators with those guys, but you got to figure out what Callie Rosen is. I don't think he's anything better than a third pairing defenseman, but I'd like to see it because he's playing better than Nick Luddy this season. I'm with you there. I don't think he's anything better than the third pairing defenseman, but I would be throwing him in all those situations to evaluate him down the stretch of the season, because I'd rather be evaluating him. And I know this is going to sound weird because we're talking about a team that's not a playoff team. I'd rather be evaluating him now so I can know what he is going into the offseason rather than what the Blues had done like last year where it was evaluating Mikula in the first half of the year and then had to make that move to Nick Luddy in the second half at the NHL trade deadline. I agree. I think his ceiling probably is just going to be kind of that third-pairing defenseman. But you know what? Throw him on the power play. Let's see. Can he end up showing us more than what we think we have here? I, I don't think he would. I think he would settle with the decision. All right, you know, yeah, we do have a solid sixth defenseman. But I, I think you have to give him all the opportunities possible down the stretch of this season because, as we've said, it is evaluation mode. And he's one of the most intriguing players, in my mind, as of right now on this Blues roster of who I want to see what his ceiling truly is. We've got a lot of texters that are saying something to the de- to the degree of, guys, at least he's better than Colton Pareko. Are they wrong? This comes from David Panyota, who we're hoping to reach out to for later this week. He is of the fourthperiod.com. That's where you can find his work. Quote, with the spotlight directed at the Blues lately, specifically on Barbashev, O'Reilly, Achari, Thomas Grice, etc., there are some whispers around the league that a couple teams have been aggressively poking around on Colton Pareko. Again, that comes from David Panyota, reporter for the fourth period. Alex, I remember it was roughly this time last year that we started to hear similar types of reports about Jordan Bennington. Would the Blues consider listening on Jordan Bennington? Is he going to be on the move? Is Toronto going to make a play for Jordan Bennington? And the end result was, no, he wasn't traded. And then he ended up coming in for the postseason. And we all knew at that point in time, okay, yeah, Bennington continues to be the franchise goalie moving forward for the Blues. Is that the same vibe you're getting around the Colton Pareko thing? Do do you think there is... Any legs to this? How do you read this report from David Panyota? Uh, David Panyota is great at his job, and he is tied in. I, I don't believe this. I, I would say that you're spot on with the Jordan Bennington comp. I think that's what this is. I'm sure a couple of teams have probably called and said, hey, your team's bad right now, Doug. You looking for Colton Pareko? Don't do it is what I would say. Really? I, I, I know, T-Bone, you're one of these people, and I'm sure there's a ton on the text line that would say it. Um, I, I wouldn't do it. I think you would regret trading Colton Pareko. And I know it's because of the seven years and the six and a half million dollars. You took the words right out of my mouth. (laughs) Colton Pareko goes, and I'd be curious to hear who those teams are. Are they 
underwhelming teams that are looking for better play from their defense or are they playoff contending teams? My guess would be playoff contending teams because teams that are bad right now aren't pursuing a long-term sure. contract uh, contract with a defenseman. I, I would I would venture to say if he gets traded to a better team than the Blues are right now, you're trading Colton Pareko, and that's why I wouldn't do it. Um, I, I just I wouldn't take the chance with it. I, I I believe this is a bad season for Colton Pareko. And I also believe in I've I've texted with a couple of different scouts. I've talked with Mike McKenna. I've talked with a couple of different people. They've said he has just he's he's been in an unfortunate circumstance with an unfortunate team this season. And you wonder if it can get better moving forward if Doug tries to shake things up with the defensive core. There are two reasons that I, I don't necessarily buy into this report. And I, and I agree. Dave Pignon is really tied in. So I don't want to truly discredit his reporting but one is I don't think this is a move that would happen in season with how long-term a contract it is and trying to make this deal with six and a half million dollar cap it could I see this in the offseason sure but I, I the other part of the reason I don't believe this report is I'm flabbergasted a team would be calling the blues about Colton Preco right I'm now not just calling quote poking around yeah. aggressively yeah I, <laughs> I'm flabbergasted I can't you used flabbergasted I, thank you I I uh I, I can't believe a contending team would be calling about Colton Preco because I don't think this is just a bad year I think Pareko is truly a second pairing defenseman. I don't think a team would want him on a seven year deal or six and a half million AAV. I, this is multiple years in which Pareko has been a disappointment in my eyes. And really last year, the first half of the year was a disappointment. Only the, talk about small sample size with Nick Letty, were they overachieving? So I, I, I can't believe that this would happen. I, I think this is more of an off season type deal. And I just can't imagine a team's actually calling to try and acquire Pareko. It's also worth noting. He does have a no trade clause, so he couldn't just, go anywhere it's not like they could say hey coyotes guys interested in bringing colton yeah. pareko over there with what you're doing yeah. i i would be surprised if colton pareko wanted to go in a move <laughs> like that so he's gonna have some say here if he was to actually be on the move i'm not buying it now I do tend to believe that general managers like doug armstrong that are good at their job i think mo did this during the offseason I think they start setting things in motion before they make an actual move. So, like, I think John Mosellock this offseason had some conversations with teams about starting pitchers that could lead him to be better informed by the trade deadline of what those teams might end up be, being looking for. I think the same thing is true of Doug Armstrong here, where he's probably going to go around the league and say, hey, every player on my team defensively is available. What would you give us in a deal like that? And most of them would say, we can't take on six and a half million dollars right now in terms of a cap hit. Get back to us in the summer, though. And Doug will probably say, OK, how do you value a guy like Colton Pareko? And then he finds out he, he has a better understanding of what Pareko's value is on the on the trade market. I'm guessing that's what this is. That would be my guess. And then in the offseason, does something come of it? I, I would bet on no, but. Crazier things have happened, especially I love for this team. I love this text uh, from the 636 on area comfort service text line 314-399-9646. Dude, Colton Pareko has never been good. Huh? What are you talking about? The guy can't play with anyone. We've given him five different partners. I'd love to see your text 636 when they won the cup. Love to see it in the Well, that was following Jay year. What do you mean? Well, Mr. carried that. Well, Mr. carried that. Get the hell out of here. He was good last year for him, too. No, I think it happened. Get the hell out of here. Coming up in about 15 minutes. Did the Cardinals make a mistake by missing out on the Chafin market? I 
I was legitimately mad about a mid-tier left-handed reliever signing elsewhere on Saturday. We'll explain coming up at 12 o'clock. But next, 314-399-9646 is the air covered service text line for questions and answers here on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the BK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. You've got questions. We may have the answers. Maybe text 314-399-9646. BK and Ferrario's questions and answers on 101 ESPN. Brought to you by James Carlton with State Farm. Have drivers under 25 on your insurance? Save hundreds of dollars a year with CarltonInsurance.net. Alongside Alex Ferrario and Tanner Hendrickson, I am Brandon Kylie. It's BK and Ferrario here on 101 ESPN. In 10 minutes, we'll talk about the move from the offseason that made us all very upset over the weekend in relation to the Cardinals. We'll do that coming up here in just a little bit. Let's start with this from the 314. Alex, what would you consider to be an acceptable trade package if the Blues were to trade a guy like Colton Pareko? What would they need to get back in return for you to feel good about it? That's an interesting question. Um, boy, that's tough. I, I don't think you get better if you trade him and just get a first round draft pick, unless it's like a top 10 pick, which you're not going to get. I, I would say you got to get a prospect or an NHL ready defenseman who can play in your top four. You got to get somebody to replace Colton Pareko. Like it or not, if you don't like the way he plays and thinks he's bad, he eats 23 minutes a night. Who's taking that? You guys cool with Robert Portuzo playing 23 minutes a night? Callie Mother bleeping. Well, Gross. guess what? He's a lefty. I'm in. He's a lefty. That's all right. He can play offhand. Yeah. You got to get but some better there. That for a year. It went, it went really well, right? If you, trade, like that. if you trade him, you're not leaning into we're retooling this team so we can be competitive next year. You're leaning into we're about to hit a rebuild. And trading Franco? Yeah. See, I, I think I, it's part of the retool. <laughs> No, it's That's not. where we did. Yes, it is. Uh, I, uh, I, I think you'd move Sound one like of the, the defensemen. Stupid text line talking right now. Uh, I think you move any of the defensemen. You call it part of the retool because they have to shake up the defense, of course, somehow. And I, I think Preko falls into that category of yeah, he can be moved if you All get right. the right deal. Now I, you pissed me off. Now we're going. I, now I think, we're going on I this think road. It can be, now I, we're going on this road. I, I no. agree with you. It has no, to be no, probably no. an NHL ready defenseman that comes in return or and a prospect. And I think a, I don't. I don't even think you have a pick that's brought in. I think you're attaching a pick to send him out because of his contract. So I, I think he's you part trade of the him. Now, now I'm down T-bone yeah. with the officials. Everybody's getting Only upset Only mine's a good today. take. Tanner's is a bad take. Right. You trade Pareko, who does penalty kill, late in games, five on five. Not good at that part. Who are you putting in that spot? Scott Mayfield, the hometown kid. You're yeah. not getting Scott Mayfield. He's a free agent after the year. No, he's not. He's got one more year, doesn't he? Nope, he's a free agent. Did you look it up? Yep. I don't trust you. I never trust him when he says, "Yeah." Who, who are you putting? Who are you putting in that spot? You're going to be if you trade you. Pareko, you're <laughs> going to be playing more. First of all, New York, New York can't take him, so you can't. No, I'm not. I'm saying you trade him for a pick, and then you sign Scott Mayfield in Fine. the offseason for, like, yeah. for like yeah. half a million bucks. He doesn't even play top four minutes with the New York Islanders, so we're going to put him. T- I'm, I'm going to punch man. you in your face. Sorry, I hear what you're saying, but you're wrong. Man, I felt good to say for once, Next BK. Next question. I know why BK likes saying that phrase now. I, I am I know that I'm frustrating you, but I'm actually being honest when I say, like, that would be my plan. If I were to move on from Colton Pareko, and I I don't think that it would take that much. If, if somebody was willing to take on the full contract, I, I would probably take, like, a second or third, or second round pick, probably. 
in return for Pareko. And it's because cool. I well, it, enjoy a rebuild for the next six years. I, I hear you. And I may totally end up being wrong on this. But the reason why I'm saying that is because if I can sign and I don't know what Mayfield's market's going to be like, it could be way higher than what I'm currently anticipating. And if so, then I, I screwed myself out of a spot here. But let's say it's like three, three and a half million bucks. I can get him on a three year deal. He's 31 years old next year, something like that. Well, now I've just saved myself three and a half million dollars by going from Pareko down to Scott Mayfield. Maybe I trade one of my other defensemen as well. And now I've made myself, I believe, a little more well-rounded because I can repurpose that money towards my top six forwards. And I can go out and get a really good forward that helps me up there as well. That, that would be my plan if I was to go down this path. I don't think that the Blues will, but that would be my plan. Um, and then I would probably go into a rebuild. Uh, 314-399-9646 is the air covered service text line for questions and answers. Guys, who would you rather have if you were a starting a football team? Young Brady or Young Mahomes? Do I know what the outlook is for Brady? Like, do I know, like, his future? Is that my future? No, like, you just know you just, I'm, I'm getting... One of these two guys. Let's say after Brady won the third. So this is like 05. So you know he's he's really good. Um, you get young Brady at that point in his career, or young Mahomes, where he's at right now, because that's kind of similar time timelines. I know this is going to sound crazy, but I think I would go Mahomes. I would too. Uh, just the mobility, the ability to win. I, Brady had it all, and Brady did it with very little. But you also asked the question, how much success was with the head coach? And I guess you could do that with Mahomes, but I just, I think how Mahomes plays as the quarterback, I would go him. I. Uh... It does feel weird to say, but I, I think I'm with you in terms of taking Patrick Mahomes, and I think it is because his mobility. I, I think you have to have a mobile quarterback in today's game to win, unlike in the early 2000s in Brady's career, where it was still the quarterbacks were sitting in the pocket, they can make plays. And look, I'm not saying Brady would be like, you know, the Carson Wentz if he were to be playing in his prime in this era. No, he'd still be really good. I just think that mobility takes you to a whole nother level. I mean, you saw even yesterday on one bad ankle, Mahomes' mobility was a difference maker in that football game. So I, I just think the mobility is so key now at that position that I would lean towards taking Patrick Mahomes. I also just don't. I don't respect cheaters. Uh, 314-399-9646 is the air comfort service text line. Guys, are you going to be doing your 20 most important Cardinals for this upcoming season the way you did the last couple of years? We are. Uh, I think we're starting that, what, in the next couple of weeks? We're not starting it this week because I haven't put it together yet, nope, which nope. means I'm going to forget somebody on that list. I can't wait for him to forget Wilson Contreras. <laughs> it's going to be great. If he has a season like Yadier Molina does last year, then I will be spot on. In his defense, was he wrong last year about leaving Yadier no, off the list? he ended up being right. Uh, final question here, guys. What did you think of Mizzou's crazy week last week, especially coming off of the win against Tennessee? Eh, Tanner, okay. are, you, are you surprised they didn't end up in the top 25? The, the top 25 just came out and they they were kind of in the others receiving they did it? category. I'm I'm a little surprised by that. Well, that list is ridiculous. I'm not even saying they're like one of the 25 best teams necessarily, you, you just but took they down, definitely have a top 25 resume. You just took down a number six team on the road. Albeit it was a buzzer beater, but it was a number six team on the road. And you're not going to put them in the top 25? I'm a surprised by that. I mean, they, they That's have trash. wins over Iowa State in the top 25, Tennessee in the top 10, Illinois. Like they've got some big time wins now on the season. I... Am I surprised a little bit, but I, I I think the AP rankings sometimes get like you look at Mizzou in conference play seven and five, those middling teams sometimes get hurt by that because the big 10 is loaded. I've, I've said this all year. 
but there's a lot of teams that are sitting in the middle of that pack around i think it's the seven and five record too i have to go back and look but a lot of teams sitting in that middle pack where they've got barely above 500 in conference play and they get hurt in the ap rankings poll so i are they top 25 worthy team i i would make the argument yes Am I surprised that they're not in? Not really, because I think a lot of people just kind of look at them from afar. It can get, oh, 7-5 in the SEC. Oh, no, sorry, not a top 25 team. Coming up in 15 minutes, we'll play a game of in or out. We'll see if Alex is in or out of the studio at that point in time. But coming up next, did the Cardinals make a mistake by not getting more involved in the Andrew Chafin market? I think the answer is a resounding yes. What happened here? We'll talk about it next year on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. I was minding my own business on Saturday afternoon. Driving out to Florissant to hang out at Cugino's and have myself some delicious narrow gauge beer, Alex. When I get the alert on my phone that the Diamondbacks have come to an agreement on a deal with left-handed reliever Andrew Chafin. Alongside Alex Ferrario and Tanner Hendrickson, I'm Brandon Kiley. It's BK and Ferrario here on 101 ESPN. Chafin got a deal worth $6.25 million this year, and that even is a little bit misleading. It's actually worth $5.5 million for this season, and then there's a $750,000 buyout for the Diamondbacks if they decide not to bring him back in 2024. Why is that, Alex? Because they also got a buyout. Or, excuse me, they also got a, a team option on this deal. So basically what this is, is a two-year deal worth something close to $15 million for the team for Andrew Chafin. Now, if you're not familiar with one Andrew Chafin's work, you probably would like to know that he's among the best left-handed relievers in all of baseball. He's been outstanding now for like a five-year stretch, and this doesn't happen, especially with lefty relievers where they're consistent year to year. We talked a lot about Matt Moore in the offseason. Alex, he's a guy that we both really liked. Well, Matt Moore is a failed starter that had to go into the bullpen who's had some up and down seasons for himself. Did Michael Fulmer just gets signed too, and he's the same way? A lot of up and downs. Andrew Chafin's the opposite. He's the same dude every single year. Good strikeout rate, doesn't walk anybody, just an overall very good uh, relief pitcher. Does anybody have an explanation to me as to why this was a deal that the Cardinals opted against signing? Anybody? Anybody have a good explainer on that one? Because I've been the guy that's been higher on the Cardinals offseason than most. I said they get like a, a high B for what they did in the offseason. This deal changes that a little bit for me. I, I do think that missing out on Chafin for that kind of money is... That's frustrating. Well, the proper answer is they got too many lefties. They got the guy from uh, Kansas City, Masevich, for cash. Uh, he's in their rotation now, and you've got Hennessy's Cabrera and Zach Thompson. I saw that there was some long toss with Matthew Liebertor today. Oh, that should signify a weapon from the left side out of your bullpen. Uh, you got too many options right now and not enough space for a guy who has just been elite in the last couple of seasons as a lefty out of the bullpen. Also, it costed too much. 
six and a half million dollars put you over the cap. Right. Remember, because they did spend more this season. But they said that they have money available. Yeah, that, uh, I, I felt like that was a mirage. I, I'm not sure they really had money available. It was before they took into consideration you know all how, of the money for Wayno's this season. Yeah, you know how Mo always says, uh, you know, our our budget's never written in pen. It's always kind of written in pencil, where we can always make those changes if a deal fits in. This felt like the budget was written in pen because this deal made a ton of sense for the St. Louis oh, Cardinals. No, it was typed on ink, on printer ink, and printed out and stapled to the wall of Bill DeWitt. I, I don't understand why they weren't involved in this deal because we talked about this last week. And I said last week, you know, if this was a multi-year deal, okay, I could understand the Cardinals' decision to kind of step aside and not not want to be swimming in these waters. But, I mean, Alex, we, we went back and forth on this. I said, you know, I, I can't imagine he's looking for a multi-year deal at this point when pitchers deal. and catchers are reporting two-day for the St. Louis Cardinals. I... I knew he had to be getting a one-year deal, maybe with an option on it, and he did. I, I can't believe the Cardinals weren't involved in this kind of market because this isn't overly priced. He got less this season than he decided to decline in his contract for last Shocking. season. I, I I don't understand the decision not to be involved because they are missing swing and miss in the bullpen still, in my opinion. They've got a couple of guys they're going to gamble on, like a guy that was pitching the Mexican League last year in the Rule 5 draft they got in Rodriguez. I, I just think you could have added certainty on this kind of a deal, and it would have made all the sense in the world. He slides into that seventh, eighth inning role for the St. Louis Cardinals, being from the left side. You can pair him with Gio, and you can kind of go between those two for that seventh, eighth inning role. I, I, I don't understand why they had no interest in this deal. He he was almost one of those that felt like we've been talking about him since the beginning of the offseason, which we hadn't been, but it just felt like one of those where it made sense the whole time, and I expected to get a notification on my phone, hey, the Cardinals signed an Andrew Chafin. I don't get it. Somebody texted in and said, if you ever consider that he didn't want to play in St. Louis, sure, you can consider that, but you think he'd rather play for the Arizona Diamondbacks who don't look like a playoff team or Oakland? And maybe he just wanted to play in Arizona. I mean, it's it's possible, but... You'd I, imagine a guy like him, though, at his age, 32 years old, coming off of one of your best seasons or the last couple of years, one of your best seasons. Oh, by the way, also the catcher he threw to for a couple of years is on your team. He'd want to go to a team that's got a chance to win and if a team's going to offer you that money, why wouldn't you go there? And let's let's operate under the assumption that he didn't he wasn't like opposed to playing in St. Louis. And I, I don't know if that's the case or not. But uh, somebody on the text line says guys weren't Cecil and Miller both good options when the bird signed them as well. They both also had consistency. Yes. And if those were one year deals, they would have been fine. The problem was that it was a multi year agreement for both Cecil and Miller. Those were both three year contracts, if I'm not mistaken. This would have been for one year, and then the Cardinals had the option to bring him back or not in 2024. You mentioned, Alex, that they've got a lot of left-handed relief options going into next year, and and you're right. I count at least seven of them that are going to be competing for a spot on the Major League roster probably on opening day. Can we go through these real quick? Just scale of 1 to 10, super simple scale, 10 being the highest, 1 being the lowest. What is your level of confidence on these guys being reliable, high-level relievers. Like, you feel like they can be a legit number one left-handed option coming out of the bullpen, all right? Scale of 1 to 10. Henesis Cabrera, what is your your um, your level of confidence on him? Six. Three. Yeah, mine's at like a four, because I have no idea what he is at this point. Matthew Liberator. Zero. Two. Oh, can we say zero? One. Yeah, I'm at a two. Uh, Misevich. Zero. Zero. I'm at like a two. Packy Naughton. One. Yeah, three, Can't get two. lefties out, can't get righties out. Yeah, maybe out. like, like a, a three. I mean, like a four. If you got a big left-handed spot coming up in the bull, in the order, I, I don't mind Naughton. Uh, Jojo Romero, I would be at the same. I would be at like, a, like a five. I'd still be at like a one. Uh, Connor Thomas, your uh, boy. Ten. <laughs> now, in two. all honesty, probably like a 
three or four. Just haven't seen them. Don't know. Yeah, I mean, mine's like I a can't, five. I can't put confidence if I haven't seen them. Uh, and Zach Thompson would be the final one. That's the other left-hander. Put that at about a six. Right, right there with Hennessy Cabrera. Five, six would be my range on Thompson. So the guys that we're the highest on are Hennessy Cabrera and Zach Thompson, both of whom are complete wild cards in your bullpen going into the season. So as much as, yes, they, they do have options, they have competition for that spot, they don't have any dudes. And if you're going to get into a season and you have nobody that you for sure can rely upon, it's going to take you some time to be able to figure out who that guy is. And I do think there is value to just knowing what your team is early in the season, especially when you have so many questions elsewhere. I like that they have a five-man rotation, that they're not trying to figure out on the fly who's going to be in it going into this season. Last year, you didn't have that. Jordan Hicks was like trying to work his way up by the time that we got into the regular season. Um, Last year, when it came to your outfield, you didn't know what was going on there, but you pretty much knew what your bullpen was going to be. This season, I've got real questions about the bullpen. I've got questions about the outfield mix going into the season. I'd rather be able to fix one of those going into the season, and it doesn't seem like they're going to. Um, So when I saw that Andrew Chafin was was signed elsewhere, we've said all offseason, if you're mad at the Cardinals, be sure to say what you're mad specifically about. Who did you want them to sign that they didn't sign? I've made it known the guy that I wanted them to sign was Carlos Rodon. I don't think you wanted to sign here. I think you wanted to play in New York. This is the one. This is the one now that I'm going to be looking at all season long. If the Cardinals left-handed relievers fail, they are not as good as the team is expecting them to be. This is one we're going to look back on and say, you could have just had him. And instead, they're probably going to be sending prospects somewhere at the deadline to be able to get somebody probably that shows Arizona up the to yeah, get Andrew, to get Chafin. Andrew Chafin. It's just so frustrating, man. It seems to happen every year. All right, coming up in 15 minutes, where did that Super Bowl rank among the best that we've seen over the last 20 years? At least one ESPN columnist said that it will go down as the best. I'll tell you who that was coming up in 15 minutes. In or out, coming up next. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. Come on, man. Are you in or are you out? It's in or out with PK and Ferrario. Four three nine 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 six four six is the air comfort service text line for in or out. You give us a scenario. We'll tell you if we are in or out here on 101 ESPN guys in or out. The refs won that Super Bowl last night for the Kansas City Chiefs. T-Bone, you can get us started here. All right. This I, behind uh, us. Again, again. I don't think that <laughs> Super Bowl. There's a Perico coming next. Was determined completely by the referees. I don't think I'm out. Was it the right call? No. Should they have thrown the flag? No. It it ended up resulting in Casey just allowing to run the clock down to kick the game-winning field goal and ruin us from an all-time great Super Bowl. But I'm out on this one. You know what BK is, T-Bone? He's that sour relationship that keeps bringing up the bad things and is like, hey, remember that time five years ago? He's the ex that just keeps sending you pictures of of the new guy she's with. Yeah. Yeah, Didn't know what direction you were taking, uh, buddy. Yeah, I'm out on this, but I don't appreciate you trying to rile Tanner up. Yeah. Well, let's get to the Colton Brickle question next. I should block you on next. all my social media. I'm out on this as well. Uh, from the 314, guys, in or out, the door is now open for Patrick Mahomes to go down as the greatest of all time. In or out, the door is open out. for Patrick Mahomes to go down as the greatest of all time. It's what, two championships in four years? Mm-hmm. 
He's been to the Super the Bowl first three of those four. In NFL history to win multiple championships and multiple league MVPs in his first six seasons. He has only played in five of those. My hesitancy seasons. there is what happens when Andy Reid retires? Because that would be my bigger question. But for how good he is, and what is he, 28 years old? So here's my question. We all uh, follow up to this. We all view Michael Jordan as being the greatest, right? He's, he's the GOAT. Why don't we view Bill Russell as the GOAT? Because Bill Russell is the one that has more rings. He won more in his career than Michael did. But Michael was so overwhelmingly great and got the rings that he is able to go down as the best to ever do it. And we all agree, like universally, that he's the guy, right? Can Pat become that? Is it possible for him to be to Tom Brady what Michael was to Bill Russell? Does that make sense? Yeah. Because if you were somebody that went with the rings argument previously, Michael was so overwhelmingly great in his career that he he pushed you even even the biggest Bill Russell advocates were pushed to the Michael Jordan. Would it be more like a LeBron James Michael Jordan? Because maybe the rings. Because Pat already has two. It, it yeah, took but maybe he six doesn't. Six years for for LeBron to even get his first. But what I mean by that is LeBron isn't like the the argument with him is the rings, right? If Mahomes ends his career and doesn't have more rings than Tom Brady, we still might be talking about him being one of the greatest. But you're always going to go back to the yeah, but the rings and yeah, but look at him, right? And I think that's where it is the the Russell versus Michael. I just discussion. don't know the rings with Patrick Mahomes. That's my bigger question with this in terms of catching Tom Brady with those. Right, but what I'm saying is, can he be... Like, let's say he ends up getting four in his career. So he gets two more. That's that's amazing. That would be the second most ever. Um, if he is so great and he continues to do this... Let's I think say people up, are still going to say, though, that Tom Brady was better because he's got more. Yeah. But then why don't we do that with Bill Russell? I, I think, it, that, I think it's a different... I'm, I'm, I'm not understanding the difference. I think the difference then with Russell to Jordan... And, and, and correct me if you th- or tell me what you think here. I think it was just because the NBA takes off with Michael Jordan as a league as a whole. It's publicity around and it's it. It's publicity yeah. around it. I because if if the league had kind of transcended and gone in that massive upward trajectory during Russell's prime, and you were seeing all those rings and all the media was around it, I think it would be a different conversation. I also think the generations that enjoyed Bill Russell's career compared to the generations that have enjoyed Michael Jordan's career are like the people that can actually have common conversations with people and hear both sides of the argument and be okay with it. Whereas the Michael Jordan era has been, I don't want to hear your side of the argument. My side is always correct. Yeah. I, I think the maybe the biggest thing here is just the gap. There was 20 year gap between Michael and Russell and their careers. I do think it's the publicity around. I mean, Michael Jordan, I mean, it wasn't even basketball. It Worldwide. was just, yeah, right. But what I'm, I, I'm, I think that's part of it. Like, Bill Russell played in the 60s, so yeah. there there just wasn't the same publicity. And then you got 15 years removed from his playing career before we got into the Michael Jordan era. LeBron, or excuse me, um, Patrick Mahomes and Tom Brady literally overlapped in their careers and played against one another. So I, I guess maybe that's it. But if there's a comparison for how this would be possible, it is the Russell slash Michael Jordan debate because Russell won 11 titles and was a five-time NBA MVP. Like he... He was the greatest of his era, and everybody agreed that is the guy. And then Michael just was so much better that he, he became the guy. Uh, 314-399-9646 is the air comfort service text line for in or out. Guys, in or out, the Eagles are more likely to get to the Super Bowl next year than the Chiefs. This is an interesting one. 
I'd say I'm out because the Chiefs did that with no number one wide receiver, and I tinfoil think they're going to get themselves a number one wide receiver. They might be better next season than they are this season, which is wild to say. And as great as the Eagles were this year, their roster is going to be depleted. They lose a lot of impactful players. Granted, they can add, and they do have a top 10 pick uh, in this draft, but I'm going to say it's the Chiefs, so I'm going to say I'm out on that. See, I, I say I'm in on that, and it's not so much on the Chiefs, it's so much on the NFC as a whole. And I I, I said this earlier, I... I think the Eagles, will they get back to the Super Bowl next year? Maybe we'll see how the dominoes lie at the end of the offseason, what the NFC teams end up doing. But even if two teams have a great offseason in the NFC, to me it compares nothing to the AFC. The AFC is a gauntlet. And even if the Chiefs add a number one wide receiver, it is still going to be tough to get past Joe Burrow, who is still getting better. Justin Herbert, who is still getting better. Uh, Lamar Jackson, if he's healthy, Baltimore is going to be back in the conversation. Josh Allen, I haven't even mentioned. If he quits turning the football over, it becomes a different conversation about the Bills. I just think it's so much tougher to get out of the AFC already before looking to see what the dominoes occur in, in, through the offseason that I would just right now, I would say take the take the Eagles side. I think that NFC is going to get better, too, though. And looking I do, specifically too, but I, I don't know if Lions. we can get to the point where we're at in the AFC where we're talking about what five of the top six quarterbacks are in the AFC. Yeah. I can't see the NFC changing that much. I actually agree with Tanner. I, it, it's about the competition. There are just so many better teams in the AFC than there are in the NFC right now. And there's quarterbacks that I trust. And it's really hard to do this again. So if if I was to bet on one of these two teams to make it back, it's about competition more than their respective teams. Cause I think yeah. the chiefs are going to be better next year than they were this year. I think this was the, this was the year where they were supposed to be like retooling and it ended up with them winning a Super Bowl. It's like some of those Patriots teams in the late 2010s where it was like, wait, this was supposed to be a down year for them. That last one that the Patriots won against the Rams, that was a quote unquote down season for the Patriots. And it was a Super Bowl win. That's how this was supposed to be for the Chiefs. So I, I could definitely see them back in the game. There's just such better competition in the AFC. The Bengals are going to be really good. The Bills are going to be awesome once again. It, maybe the Chargers finally figure things out. I think if the Ravens get this thing back on track, they could be very good again. Rodgers could be coming to the AFC. Yeah, there's there's a lot of teams in the AFC that you could look. Can to. I throw one at you guys? Please. In or out, you've cried at something the way Nick Sirianni cried at the no, national never. anthem. Never. I'm in. What did you cry? Yeah. Marley and seven? me. No, Marley and me. Oh, that's, a good, that's fair. Hey, I'm not going to criticize, man. I cried during Balled Marley and me. No, I didn't cry at the notebook. No. Balled my eyes out at Marley and me, though. Dear John, I didn't get you. I don't see Dear John either, man. <laughs> what kind of movies are you watching? A lot of them, man. Nicholas Sparks, he gets me. Coming up in 15 minutes, <laughs> okay. we'll dive into so the junk in. drawer. But next, nobody's surprised by that. Where did that Super Bowl rank among the best that we've seen over the last 20 years? We'll talk about it next year on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast, presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. Here we go. Hurts has all day. Now some rushers come. Going to throw it as far as his arm can take it, which is well short. And the Kansas City Chiefs have won Super Bowl 57. That's what it sounded like on Fox yesterday as the Chiefs win the Super Bowl. Earlier today, Seth Wickersham wrote this. 
Look, I get it. If you're a Giants fan and you think that Super Bowl was the greatest ever, if you're a Niners fan, you think your Super Bowl was the best ever, that's fine. You could go on and on with any winner with a legitimate argument. But I'm sorry, this one, the Super Bowl that we saw on Sunday between the Chiefs and the Eagles is the greatest ever. Again, that came from Seth Wickersham. That was not my words. That was Seth Wickersham's words. What he wrote over on ESPN.com. And Seth has been writing for 20 years um, on the NFL. Alex, I wanted to take a little bit of a look back to kind of put what we witnessed yesterday in perspective. Sometimes we we fail to do this. We just say everything that we saw the latest is the greatest. Yeah, and that's, Tanner. That's what Seth's doing here. Well, I wouldn't be saying that. <laughs> I went back through all the Super Bowls since 2000 to kind of put together what I think is a list of the best Super Bowls that we've seen in that stretch. Man, I will start with this. We've seen some damn good ones over the last 20 years. You look at most of the Patriots... Most of them were pretty excellent, the, the the games that they were in. Rams versus Pats in 2001. I know, I know. But an all-time great Super Bowl nonetheless. Patriots versus Eagles in 2004. An all-time great Super Bowl. You had the Terrell Owens performance on a broken leg coming back for that one. Uh, Patriots versus Giants in both 07 and 2011. Both great games, but more great finishes than great overall games, in my opinion. Uh, Steelers versus Cardinals, one of the more forgotten Super Bowls that we've had in the last 20 years. That was an all-timer in that one. Year. Um, the Patriots versus the Seahawks, of course, that was the interception at the goal line. And then the Patriots versus the Falcons, 28-3. to And then there's last night. When you hear those games, Alex, where, where would you stack it up? What would you have definitively ahead of that? I don't know if it would be the best because there are a couple of those games that, I mean, the final play... I mean, the hands are on your head immediately. Like, uh, I'm thinking of that pick in the end zone by Malcolm Butler. I I couldn't believe that that took place. So that one stands out. Uh, That Cardinals-Steelers games, you're right. People forget how great that one was. The Giants' victory over the Patriots, that was one that I still remember to this day. I I would definitely have it top three, but I believe I would... I think I would have that... Patriots win over the Seahawks as number one because that that one was unreal. Really, I I would go Pats versus Falcons as my best Super Bowl. I'd have that number two. I've never seen anything like it. I'd have that as number two. It was the moment for me that I definitively said Tom Brady's the best. I mean that, like that I I can't go away from him. There is no argument for anybody else. Tom Brady, what he just did. Nobody has ever done that before. That's it. I get that. But that Patriots Seahawks game, we all knew what was going to happen. Marshawn Lynch was going to run it into the end zone and the Seahawks were going to win. And he threw it to Malcolm Butler. I think the difference and I get caught up in this sometimes. I look at like best ending, best finish versus best overall game. And I think that's what made last night so special is. From start to finish, it was an outstanding game. High scoring. uh, You had the teams going back and forth from the very first possessions. Both teams score on their opening possession of the game. So that's what made it so much fun. And that's where I do come back to like the Patriots versus the Falcons game. I thought it was over in the second quarter. And then somehow they find a way to come back. And that's not just the finish. It's basically the entire second half was just like watching Mad Max Fury Road (laughs) with the Patriots being in the starring role. The Steelers versus the Cardinals one is another one that I think you could put a a big time asterisk next to in terms of being right up there. Those are the two for me that I, I kind of put on into this category. I don't have either of the Giants versus Patriots games in that category. And it's because of what I just mentioned. I think they're both all time great finishes. I'm not sure that they had the greatness in terms of like sustained energy excitement level from start to finish. 
they're both very low scoring and I prefer higher scoring games. So that reflects upon my own sensibilities as well. I, I would probably have it. I think I would probably have it third, third for me. Pats versus Falcons, Steelers versus Cardinals, and then last night's game would probably be the way that I would rank the top three over the last 20 years or so. Yeah, mine would have been that Pat Seahawks won, and then it would, I think I would probably go that Falcons-Pats game, and then, of course, last night. See, I think I would put it around 5-6 is where I'd put it. I have a little lower. I, uh, Where'd last year's fall into this? Last year's was great. Uh, no, I, I that actually was one don't. Of the worst. I, was was saying, the I, worst. I don't put that game up there the, that high. The two Rams kind of ones rock. recently were yeah. both awful. Yeah. <laughs> I was gonna say, how come nobody went with the thirteen three game? Yeah. It wasn't great defense. It was bad offense. Uh, I, I think I would put around five sixties. I agree. I had the twenty eight to three comeback up there. I've got the goal line pick up there. The Rams won when they beat New England with, uh, in the early two thousands. Is up there for me. I I think that Cardinals that Cardinals Steelers games up there, and then I think the Foles game where Foles outduels Tom Brady. Just because I think it was a good game oh, overall. I forgot to put that one on and, here. And yeah. I, I think it's a great, I think Man, it's a great football game yeah. because it's the backup quarterback. It was the guy that wasn't in the MVP conversation, the backup going up against the goat, and he ends up stealing it. And you also have a play that's memorable from it in the Philly special. I think last night's Ooh. game falls outside the top five for me. I think it sits about sixth is where I would put it. And I know you're going to hate what I'm about to say, but I, to officials. me, to me, the, the ending of last night's game is why it kind of falls out to me because I think it was a great game. But if we're going to throw in an ending to the conclusion of a football game, the ending for me wasn't that exciting. I, I thought it was controversial. And then Mahomes taking three snaps or two or three snaps in a row, I can't remember, and just walking back and taking an knee and then kicking a field goal with eight seconds to go. And then the final play was just a bad Hail Mary attempt. I, I The ending to me was just kind of blah last night's game. I, I thought it was a dud ending. Otherwise, it probably sits in the top five. But to me, it fell out of that because of the ending. I, I think it's six. I still think it was a great football game last night, but I can't put it in my top five over the recent years. He, he preferred when the Patriots fumbled inside of their own 10-yard line, and then the Eagles took four plays to kick a field goal, and then the Patriots had a Hail Mary attempt at the very end. Sounds pretty similar to, to the ending that we just saw. That's that's the game that Tanner just picked over over last night's matchup. Is he wrong before uh, no, you get there angry? There wasn't a controversial call that I remember in that game. You probably don't remember the calls that were made in that Air game because we are now four years removed from the game. That is a good question, though. What do you think was the better overall game? More well-played game between last night's game. They're both the Eagles Super Bowls. Last night's game versus the Nick Foles Eagles Super Bowl victory. Like well-played from both teams? Just like... Which game did you enjoy more? Which game do you think oh, was it better? Was last night's because I, I mean, I, up until I do think we sleep on that Nick Foles performance. He was he was awesome. He was unbelievable. Yeah, he was, but man, that that one last night was just as entertaining as you can ask for. And there were zero sacks in the game for Philly. I don't did Kansas City get a sack? I don't think that. Well, uh, I think they was, pushed Hurts out of bounds, which would have been yeah. considered one. But I mean, I think to, it was technically two in the game, is what they had to think about that they one combined for two yards lost. It's wild. That that one to me would still be better than that Eagles win. Yeah, it's an interesting question. I, I think. When I look at it, I almost lean towards the Foles game just because, like, I expected the Eagles to put up some points last night. I kept watching that Super Bowl with Foles against Tom Brady going, all right, he's playing well. At some point, he's going to be Nick Foles, right? And he never did. He, he ended up being great. Goat. <laughs> he outplayed the freaking GOAT. So I think I have to lean towards 
that Super Bowl just because I, I think that was just a flawless performance from Nick Foles. And again, I'm not trying to take anything from last night's game. I thought Hertz was fantastic last night. He didn't even throw for 373 yards and three touchdowns, though. Like He I, also ran for 70. I was going to say, yeah, that's why that one was more entertaining, I, I, too. I think, I think he did Foles, have the 70 yards I, on I the ground. The, I think the storyline of Foles taking down the GOAT and just watching that play out was better in that time than it was last night and for we me. we also saw like 18 third down and fourth down like plays, which is very wild to say in a Super Bowl game. Yeah, I, I think that after thinking about it a little bit more, I, I think I would go with the Nick Foles game as well as being slightly better than what we saw last night. I think there were more storylines coming out of that game. Uh, you had the Philly special, which is an all-time moment, an all-time play in an individual Super Bowl. I, I think I would probably go with that one as well. And looking back on these numbers, the Eagles averaged 7.6 yards per play in that Super Bowl. The Patriots averaged eight and a half yards per play and lost lost the damn Super Bowl. Just unbelievable. So, yeah, I would say last night was like top five ish over the last 20 years. And that's not even going back any further than that. We've had a lot of people say uh, the Rams versus the Titans as one of them as well. That's outside of our time frame. But yes, that that was an amazing one as well. So I definitely disagree with Seth Wickersham. As awesome as that was last night, it was a special game. It's not in the best Super Bowl ever category for me. Not not doesn't quite reach that level. And I say that as somebody who obviously enjoyed the hell out of that game uh, last night. Coming up in about 15 minutes or so, Ivan Barbashev is going to want have one heck of a market when we get closer to the trade deadline. We'll talk about him and what his market could be. But coming up next, we're diving into the junk drawer with the other stuff that happened last night during the Super Bowl halftime show. And the commercials. We know you guys were tuning in for that. We'll talk about it next year on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast, presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. Let's open it up. The junk drawer with BK and Ferrario. Brought to you by Fenton Bar and Grill. Best trashed wings in Missouri. Dine in, carry out, seven days a week. Alongside Alex Ferrario and Tanner Hendrickson, I'm Brandon Kiley. It's BK and Ferrario here on 101 ESPN in about 10 minutes or so. We're talking Ivan Barbashev, what his market's going to be like at the trade deadline. Sure seems like he's going to be somebody that is in high demand based on all reports. But Alex, first, let's dive into the junk drawer. Let's get into the other aspects of the Super Bowl, right? It's not just you, me, and Tanner watching the game, breaking down the officiating the day day after. There's other stuff. There's the commercials that are going on. Of course. There's the halftime show that a lot of people tune in for. Let's start there. What'd you think of Rihanna's performance where she basically announced to everybody that she is once again pregnant? We have had that confirmed today. Overall, what were your thoughts on her performance, though? Boring. It was boring. I I mean... There was nothing. There was nothing to it, and no nothing against her because she was pregnant. Can't really do much when you're it had to have been six months pregnant. Um, but it was it was boring. Like Rihanna's Rihanna's a performer. Rihanna's not the stand and sing type of person, and I'm sure it probably bugged the hell out of her that she couldn't do anything else. But then it's the cards when you get pregnant. Um, but it, it was not good. Yeah, I damn I. <laughs> I, mean, I, I wouldn't say it wasn't not good. I because like I I think there's some songs Rihanna that I that I cool. enjoy. I'll listen to it on Spotify after the game. 
I, I'm not as like scream at the clouds like the old man to my left, but uh, I uh, I, di- I didn't think that the performance was all that great. I, like I saw an article on the Athletic this morning where it, like ranked I think the last thirty Super Bowl performances. Maybe that's how long they've been doing it. I have no idea. And they had a third best. I'm like, there's no, there's no way it was third <laughs> no best. No way. I, I I didn't really care for it either. I I just thought it was kind of blah. And I I I half expected when she did run this town for Jay Z to come out, which would have got me a little more excited. But uh, he was I, there, by the way. He was there. Was That's the why suite. I kind of thought it was possible. I did. I, I just I didn't find it all that great. I, I thought it was just kind of blah. Because I'm the old man yelling at the clouds in this spot, which is why well, was as aggressive ridiculous. as you. What were some of the best Super Bowl performances ever? Yeah. Uh, I think that a lot of people look at Beyonce's as being the best. Okay. Yeah. Lady Gaga, Bruno yeah. Mars, Prince. You're telling me that Rihanna stood anywhere near those? No. Get the hell out of it. Rihanna was closer to Justin Timberlake's performance. Yeah. And the only reason I love Justin Timberlake's performance is because I love Justin Timberlake. I, I thought Justin Timberlake had the worst that I've seen oh, no. um, Rihanna, recently. Rihanna. I, I disagree. Said, I, my beer there. I, I think Rihanna was, was significantly better than Justin Timberlake's was. No way. I think that people just don't... Alex, I'm not saying this to bash you by any yeah, stretch. Yeah, you are. But here comes the backhanded compliment and then the victory lap afterwards. Mm. This is who Rihanna is. This is what her concerts are like. She's going to go up there. She's going to play all the hits that you like. And you can either take it or leave it. She's going to dance. She's going to have some choreography going on. And if you're not into that, like if you don't like her music, first of all, and if you're not into just watching her go up there, dance a little bit with some back background dancers, then you're not going to enjoy the, the concert. That's okay. There's no harm, no foul in that. Do you like Rihanna? Yeah, I love Rihanna. I love, love her music. But when I watch a Super Bowl halftime show, I expect a performance. Yeah. And that wasn't a performance. Yeah, I, I guess that's and fair. And again, not a disrespect to her because she couldn't perform. She was pregnant. I thought it was fine. I thought it was fine. I read a piece earlier today over on uh, The Ringer, uh, breaking it down as to like, you know, what what exactly did we just witness? And they, they essentially said like, hey, this is this is who Rihanna is. She's, she's going to go up there and... In a scenario where most people give everything and like do too much, like Lady Gaga doing a little too much coming down from the the sky, or Katy Perry with the left shark, Tiger like, or whatever it was. Yeah, you, you've got all these different things that people are bringing in to basically try to go viral. Even if it's standing and singing, like last year's was that because I've, I saw a lot of people say like, well, Dre but that had like that whole set and, and you were looking yeah. forward to the next person. That's why if Jay-Z would have come out, my opinion on the whole thing would have changed. But because there was nothing with it, it was just blah. It was boring. I, I thought it was like a, a 13 minute Rihanna concert. I told myself, I, I think that if I go to a Rihanna concert, that's what I expect to see. And I, I, think, I think you get a little bit more of a performance from her. I just watched a Rihanna concert video. This is basically what it is. Oh, well, and then I would save my 13 minutes and three hours. I went to the bathroom went. in the middle of it. Kind of tells you where it was. What I'm saying is I think what we've come to expect with the halftime shows, though, is that it's more of a show and less of a concert. And when you get that and then you're fed a concert and you're expecting a show, a spectacle, it can feel a little underwhelming. And I think that's where I was last night. And I think it's it's fair to feel underwhelmed by that show. I there was nothing that I'm going to look back on and be like, yeah, I remember that because of blank. And I remember years, it because she was pregnant 
I'll remember it because there were the like white Michelin man costumes. And that's probably all I'll remember about the show. There was nothing else that was particularly memorable. I'm lucky to remember that. I was going to say, in three years, we're going to forget who performed at halftime this Super Bowl. No, you'll remember it was Rihanna. Rihanna's got too many hits. Then you don't like Rihanna. (laughs) Well, I do like Rihanna. Don't tell me I don't like Rihanna. I like Rihanna. I I like performance at halftime. I agree with Alex. I don't know if I'll remember that performance in like three, four years. You'll remember that Rihanna performed, though. Because she doesn't do anything. Somebody's going to perform, but I don't think I'll be able to a new album. Somebody's going to have to tell me that Mariana performed them. I'm like, oh yeah, that's right. I'll remember she probably performed. You remember that Justin Timberlake performed, right? Yeah, but I love Justin Timberlake, and I don't love Rihanna. I like Rihanna. Fair enough. Uh, All right, on the commercial side of things, am I wrong here, or was there like nothing that was memorable about about any of the commercials? Have we? I feel like I've said this now for the last few years. Have we exited the like? The era of great Super Bowl commercials. Do those exist anymore? I, I think I think they do, but it's because of who's in the commercial rather than the creativity the behind the commercial. That's fair. Because I always... Like Bradley Cooper. Every year, you know in the past, Coke's going to have a great commercial, M&M's are going to have a great commercial, Doritos are going to have a great commercial, and Pepsi's are going to have a great commercial. There's a couple of others that I'm missing. Now you walk away from that and say, oh, yeah, the commercial with Bradley Cooper or the commercial with Will Ferrell or the commercial with John Travolta. But you probably can't remember what they were promoting. A hundred percent. Like, that's it. Like, for me, the John Travolta commercial was awesome. I don't remember what the hell they were promoting, <laughs> but I remember John Travolta was singing Grease in it. And now you say that. I have no idea what they're promoting No idea, either. but it was a great commercial. I, I, the, you know what I think was the most effective one? Because I do remember what it was. It was the Ben Stiller commercial. I didn't know if it was like a great commercial necessarily, but I remember that it was the Pepsi Zero Sugar. But then they did the same thing with Steve Martin. So it wasn't even Ben Stiller's yeah, commercial. Because I remember Steve Martin, the yeah. one where is it acting or is it great taste? Uh, that I remember that one. The one I thought you were going to say was the Breaking Bad one because it was like, oh, hey, Breaking Bad. Oh, hey, they're playing off the show with the chips. Like, I don't remember the brand of the chip, but I remember the Breaking Bad. I, I'm with you. I think. I think we've exited kind of that era. I think it is more of now an era of just kind of, oh, hey, guess who was in a Super Bowl commercial than yeah. it is, man, I remember this commercial that we can talk about at the water cooler because it was funny because I didn't think any of the commercials were good last night. I used to feel like every year you could expect at least one hilarious Budweiser commercial. Oh, yeah, yeah. those are the other they, ones. They, you they remember those. They always had something going on in the Super Bowl, and I, I just didn't really feel like that this year. Somebody said the Fubi was the one that was the top commercial. If there was one that I'm going to remember, <laughs> it's probably that one. Well, Somebody, It was an autocorrect or they don't remember. It because it was Tubi, wasn't it? Not Fubi. I, maybe I mispronounced. No, it, you said it because I saw the text. It was Fubi, but they probably just auto corrected it. Oh, it's Fubi. No, no it's it is Tubi. Tubi. Somebody auto corrected Tubi to Fubi, probably. Okay. Um, T-Mobile was another one that people liked. That was the one with Bradley Cooper, right? Yeah, wasn't yeah that where they couldn't, mom? they couldn't uh, get the commercial out or whatever you want to call Apparently, it. Apparently, John Travolta was T-Mobile. <laughs> Didn't remember that. See, there you go. <laughs> That that's uh, those were probably the best ones. Somebody said I missed the frogs. I do too. I think yeah. that that was that was always a, a fun. The E Trade one was it. good with the little kids, the babies like, at a yeah. party. That one was pretty good. That's the thing is I, I think a lot of the time there's like a theme that a company can use for like a three to five year stretch, and then you have to move on to something right. new. And there's just been 57 Super Bowls now. <laughs> and so and the M and M's one was so disappointing, and I know it's all because they have to like change their whole like marketing now with Maya Rudolph and everything. But it was so underwhelming because you always look forward to those M and M commercials. I'd agree with you there. I uh, the E Trade Baby one, it, it still does. It just feels like it's times past. And like there was no like 
It didn't even feel funny this time around. It was just like, I, oh, I didn't even remember that they did it this time I, around. I chuckled yeah, at yeah. it. It, it was like, oh, it. hey, it's E-Trade Baby. And then I was like, oh, there was no point to that commercial. Like last year's, I think last year was better when the E-Trade Baby came back in the Super Bowl. And it was like, you need to come out of retirement. And he like spits some milk up. Like that one I remember. This year's was like, eh, you know, I'm not going to remember the E-Trade Baby at all. So moral of the story, Super Bowl memorable with a great finish. Everything else not so memorable about yesterday. Hey, you're right. We're not going to remember this Super Bowl in three years at all. Not the halftime, the commercials, well, you will, or the for game. For the officials dictating the outcome of the game. All right. We'll remember that. Coming up in 15 minutes or so. You guys interested in hearing how Philly fans have reacted to that Super Bowl? Because I listened to a little Philly sports talk radio Probably earlier like today. Tanner. It, went, it was pretty much as you'd expect. The one thing that surprised me, less about the refs, they are not a fan of their defensive coordinator. We'll let you hear what they had to say about that coming up in about 15 minutes. But next, what is Ivan Barbashev's value going to be on the open market? We'll talk about it here on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. players it fascinates me tremendously his salary is right he's another ufa is ivan barbashev i think ivan barbashev has tremendous value out on the uh, on the on, on the trade market because his salary fits into a lot of different places he, he he can play in different spots in your lineup and do different things and so he becomes another i think he becomes a really significant player uh for doug armstrong uh, to, to consider trading as well. And, you know, he's an unrestricted free agent as well. That was Craig Button on with us last week talking about Ivan Barbashev's value and whether or not he could end up getting something similar to what Lekkonen got last year at the trade deadline in return. Alongside Alex Ferrario and Tanner Hendrickson, I'm Brandon Kiley. It's BK and Ferrario here on 101 ESPN. There was a piece earlier today over on The Athletic by Pierre Lebrun, and he broke down some of the options for the Toronto Maple Leafs as they get closer to the trade deadline. And one of the guys that he brought up was Ryan O'Reilly. And he essentially said, yeah... Maybe it could make some sense, but I just don't see the Maple Leafs going out there and offering a first-round pick for a rental. He then continued to say this. The more realistic type of forward acquisition might be somebody like Ivan Barbashev. Yes, he's still a rental, but he shouldn't cost nearly as much in terms of being a fortune in return. And he not only helps bolster top nine minutes, but also adds some of the playoff traits that a team like the Leafs could acquire at the deadline. Again, that came from Pierre Lebrun. Alex, this is kind of where I'm at on Ivan Barbashev is that he fits every team. I think that's what makes him uh, so interesting in terms of being a trade asset is if you're the Leafs, you're interested in him. If you're the Calgary Flames, you're interested in him. If you're the Colorado Avalanche, you're interested in him. You want to, If you need a center, you need a winger, you need somebody to come in and help you scoring, you need somebody to come in and help you with physicality. He can fit whatever role it is that you're looking for on your roster. So I think there's going to be half dozen, maybe 10 teams that are interested in a guy like Ivan Barbashev. And while the Maple Leafs might not be willing to pay a first round pick, I'm not sure that anybody will be. I could see them ending up with a second round pick and a prospect in return uh, for Barbie because of this. Yeah, I don't know what's going to happen with Ryan O'Reilly when he gets traded. And Jeremy Rutherford, who, who was with me on pregame last night, even said he still believes there's a small percentage he gets re-signed but I do know for a fact that Doug Armstrong is going to hold Ivan Barbashev up to March 3rd because that is going to be a 
a competition, a bidding war between multiple playoff contending teams that want to take their team to the next level. And that's what Lekkonen was with Colorado. There were multiple teams that were trying to get him from Montreal, but nobody was willing to meet the price other than Colorado that said, we're winning the damn cup this year. And we're also going to get a guy who's an RFA that we have control over. That's the only difference between Barbashev and Lekkonen is the team that acquires him has zero control over him. He's a UFA, but you could get him and you could start negotiations right away with him. You have the exclusive rights to negotiate before he hits free agency. That's why teams are going to fight over Ivan Barbashev. There's not a whole lot. There's a lot of those top dudes like Taves and Kane and Chikrin and Meyer and O'Reilly but there's not a lot of competition with Barbashev in terms of Stanley Cup champion, a great depth piece that brings physicality, experience, and offensive ability. That's where Ivan Barbashev comes into play. Toronto would need him. Edmonton would need him. Boston would love him. Vegas would love him. You're going to see a competition between teams and whomever's willing to give up the most to get him gets Ivan Barbashev. And that's where Doug, I, I don't know if I wouldn't be... I'm not sold on the fact that they could get a first-round pick for an Ivan Barbish. If, if, if a team wants him that bad, I could see a team saying, fine, we'll pay the price. We just want him. Hey, man, if Ben Chirac can get a first-round pick, anything's possible. Very true there. You didn't have to be so hard on our boy Ben Chirac. Who's having actually a decent season Is with he? the Detroit Red Wings. Yeah, see, not that bad. But I, I do think by the the day that we come back on the air, the day that we break the news that Barbashev has been traded, I think we're going to look back on the deal or look at the deal and go, wow, they got more than I was expecting for Ivan Barbashev because I think you're right. I think he's going to hold on to him as close to March 3rd as possible and really drive up this bidding war between teams. I saw something uh, the other night on NHL Network. They were talking about potentially Vegas going after him to be their number two. I think it was center for right now while Stone is out. Mm -hmm. So there's going to be a ton of teams that are going to be bidding for services. And to your point on you get the negotiation rights to him to try and work out a contract extension, he's not going to cost you – massive dollar amount either he's a little bit too much for the blues probably in terms of what they're willing to give him but i think there will be some teams that look at it and go hey we've got some cap space not vegas but we've got some cap <laughs> well, space they do now well it's true <laughs> uh but they'll look at it and they'll go you know what for x amount of dollar that we're going to pay him it's not a whole lot we're not paying him superstar money he's a perfect complimentary piece we'll be willing to give him that on a two three year deal i i think there is going to be a massive bidding war for him and i think it's going to shock us that of what he gets in return i think there's a chance that we end up and maybe not in this room but fans look back at the Barbashev deal and are more impressed with that return than they were with the Tarasenko return. Oh, and yeah, there's a absolutely. million different factors that go into that. The context is super important here with the no trade clause for, for Vladdy being maybe the most important p- part of this, the money playing a factor in it as well, and then the role. Like there's There's only so many teams that need specifically what Vladimir Tarasenko brings to the table. Every team needs a middle six forward that does what Ivan Barbashev brings to the table. He's going to bring that physicality. He's going to be able to score for you. He can play on the wing or at center. Like he, he, just, he literally fits into every single contending team. And when you have eight or ten teams that are looking for somebody like this, it ends up boosting up the price more than what you otherwise would expect. Alex, the other big news over the weekend for the Blues kind of went under the radar, but Scott Perunovich uh, was officially sent out on a conditioning assignment uh, to Springfield. He's one of the guys that I'm super curious to watch the rest of this season. And I don't know how long it's going to be before we see him up with the NHL club, but I I still hope that he's a part of this team's future. I I want him to be a significant piece to what they're trying to build. How long do you expect this conditioning stint to last? What do you think his role could be with the NHL club whenever he's ready? Yeah. in, In conditioning stints, I might be wrong with this, but I, 
believe the max is eight games. And again, I might be off on that, but they're going to let him play the longest amount of time you could be in the minors for a conditioning stint because he frankly has not played a lot of hockey over the last two, three seasons. 14 consecutive days. So 14 days. Okay. So in within with minor leagues, that's usually about eight to 10 games because they play freaking every night. But, um, he is an intriguing one. We already talked to Callie Rosen earlier. We know that the Blues want to see Tyler Tucker more. They said it so much when they traded Nico Mikola. And you've got to find out what Scott Perunovich is because he's an RFA after this season. Now, he's not going to get much because he hasn't played more than 26 games, 27 games over the last few seasons. But, I mean, does he get top four minutes? It wouldn't surprise me. I would if, consider it. If he's healthy, you have to put him in that spot. But this is the problem for the Blues You have, when healthy, five guys on the left side that you're trying to figure out how they match and who they are with Tucker, Rosen, Krug, Letty, Perunovic, Scandella. That's six. And Scandella's going to play when he comes back also. So I I don't know how they're going to use Scott Perunovic. I can see one scenario when he's done with his conditioning stint that they say bring him up and put him in top four minutes. I can also see a scenario where they just keep him down in the minors for the rest of the season and say, just be in the in the AHL. We know you're going to be a part of the team next year. Just get reps. That's what I was kind of wondering. Is I, I wonder if they decide to go that route, not so much an evaluation period on Perunovic for this season, because I think right now you just want him, as you said, getting reps and playing as much hockey as possible and potentially build up confidence, too. I mean, we saw, mm-hmm. gosh, it's been so long, I guess last year, where he dominated the AHL oh, yeah. in that small sample size that he was there. That's and, why I wouldn't want him staying down there too long. But I, I want to I want to find out what he looks like at this level. I think the problem the Blues have, and, and you kind of alluded to this, is I, I think they do want to know what they have in Rosen and Tucker, and I think they should. I think they should be playing those guys a lot, figure out what you have in those guys. And then it just comes down to, do you are you going to play Marco Scandella when he comes back? I think I know what Marco Scandella is. Do I really need Scandella on the ice? Problem is he's making, what, $4 million? Are you going to put that up in the mm-hmm. press box? It does look good in a suit, but I, I think I'd rather have the $4 million <laughs> on the ice. And, and if, if you want him to play top four minutes, then we're having a conversation about whether it be bumping one of the top four now down to the bottom pairing or putting them up in the press box. And maybe there's someone that's dealing with an injury that we don't know about, and they end up saying, you know what, Give him rest. it's evaluation time for us. Just go on LTIR, get something right. And, and when I say that, I, I think Pareko, because I think there was kind of rumblings earlier in the year about him dealing with a back issue. If his backs bother him at all, maybe you just put him on LTIR and you go put someone into that top four like so Perunovic. My priority would be evaluating Perunovic. Like I would, if that means putting Scandella in the press box as a healthy scratch, so be it. If that means you don't see a whole lot of Robert Bortuzzo the rest of the season, that's fine. Even if that means I'm doing so at the expense, and I know that there's going to be a good portion of our listening audience that tunes me out after I say this, but if that means doing it at the expense of Tyler Tucker and you got to send him back down, fine. I need to find out what I've got right now with Scott Perunovich. Can I count on him to be the quarterback of my power play unit next year so that way this offseason I can look into trading Tory Krug? If I can't count on Scott Perunovich to do that, then you probably do need Tory Krug to be back on this roster next year. And then you look at some of the other uh, defensemen that you could send away to be able to open up some of that cap space. But for me, I, I think that there's very few players that are more important the rest of this season to find out exactly what they are 
than Perunovic. And I don't think it would happen with the AHL because, again, I mean, even Doug Armstrong said it, and I remember talking with Ryan Smith a couple of years ago in the minors where he said there's nothing else for Scott Perunovic to prove in the minors. He he dominated. He looked like a man among boys down there, and so he had to go to the, the NHL. But it's just one of those things that if Doug really needs to figure out what he's doing with this defensive core – you're probably going to, you know, at least expect that Scott Perunovich is going to be playing in your top six next year. But is Krug, is Letty, is Scandella, is Rosen, is Tucker? Like, those are the guys that I would say they're going to say, we need to figure out More who so these guys Perunovic, are. Perunovic, because I feel like I know who the first four players are that you mentioned. I there. know what Tucker is, and I. I already know what Letty and Rosen's the one that I want to find out a little bit more about. I would keep Rosen in there. And I I would say Tyler Tucker, you're going back down to the AHL. He hasn't proven everything that he needs to prove down there. And I could see them doing that too. He's got much more development to be able to do. He's a top defenseman in the minor leagues. Like they've seen it. And they said like, you're a top D man down here. Now you got to go to the NHL level, but you know what he is at the NHL level. He's nothing more than a third pairing defenseman. What is that all Scandella is? Is that all Rosen is? Is that all Letty is? Is that all Krug is? Like, we got to find that out so that we can make decisions in the offseason. This time last year, we were talking about Scott Perunovich, and the comparisons that were being put out there were a lesser version of Kale McCarr and maybe a Quinn Hughes type. That doesn't just disappear overnight Mm -hmm. because he got hurt. That still is the upside that he has. I want to find out what it looks like because we have not been able to see it over an extended period of time in the NHL. The rest of the season when these games, let's be honest, don't really matter, that's the perfect time to start evaluating a player like Scott Perunovich. So that's, that's what I want to see the rest of the year. Coming up in about 15 minutes or so, Mizzou just had one of their best wins over the last decade. We'll discuss it coming up at 1.30. But next, Philly fans are very mad at their defensive coordinator today, even more so than the refs. We'll talk about it next year on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. We've all been there. You watch your favorite team in a big game. They blow it. The refs blow it, whatever it is. And you're mad. And you just want to let somebody know that you're mad. Alongside Alex Ferrario and Tanner Hendrickson, I'm Brandon Kylie. That's what's going on in Philly over the last, you know, 14, 16 hours or so since the Eagles lost the Super Bowl. The city of brotherly love? No. I don't know if you guys saw, but before the game yesterday, this was before the game was being played. There was a car in the middle of Philadelphia that was turned over by by the citizens of Philly. They literally booed a man who was getting an award on the field for being the most gentlemanly man and doing the best work outside of football. They booed him. Yeah, The Philly fans that were down in Arizona, for those that don't know what Alex is referencing, uh, booed. Dak Prescott for winning the Walter Payton Man of the Year Award. Mm, rough. That's, so, a, that's a good group. That's how things started yesterday. Is this the same group that climbs uh, poles in uh, Philadelphia? They had to lube up the light poles. So I wanted to go back and listen to some of what was the sports radio callers uh, up in Philadelphia since the game. Some of this comes from their post-game show, others from this morning. Uh, let's start with the post-game show. Tanner, this is from the Fanatic up in Philadelphia. Darren was none too excited about the way that the Eagles lost yesterday. I've never seen a coach. I've never seen a coach sit in the cover two zone or 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 or, or a, a, a cover one zone, but never blitz. 
They go hand in hand with each other. If you're going to bring, if you're going to bring somebody, you play press coverage. You don't bring somebody and play off coverage. I don't get them. The dude got to go. Good news. He's probably headed to Arizona. Uh, by the way, that that is he was talking about the defensive coordinator. I think he's on the best defense in the NFL this year. Yeah. <laughs> they were and so like one mad. of the most highly touted potential head coaches in the NFL. They were so mad after yesterday's game. They said he got to go. <laughs> got to get up. He out pulled of the uh, what you call it. Say so who do we have? A is it Michael does? Irvin? Isn't it? He got to go. He got oh, to go. Stephen A. Oh, Stephen so A. No, it's not Stephen. It's Shannon Sharp, isn't it? No, I think it's. Is it Stephen sure A? Stephen A. Let's hear from Oliver, <laughs> who also called into the fanatic yesterday after the game. He got to get back in the cannon and shoot him in Arizona. You know what I mean? Our players wasn't in the right position all game long. All game long. Our city needed this. We hate each other. We needed this. The only thing we can agree on in this city is that we bleed green. And I blame him again. He got to get out of here, man. Can we hate play? each other. Our city needed this. Our we city. hate each other. We the only thing we other. agree upon is that we all bleed green. Can you play the very beginning of that, though? I think you kind of miss it here, but he says we need to shoot him out of a cannon in Arizona. <laughs> he got to get back in the cannon and shoot him in Arizona. Good. Now we're uh, going circus acts on our uh, defensive coordinator. Put him in the can and shoot him to Arizona. By the way, that defense did like an outstanding job in the first half, and all of a sudden, it's this guy's terrible. All right, now let's hear what they had to say this morning. Now I'm sure they've had all, all night to be able to recover. That was the immediacy of it, right? We've all been in that spot. I'm sure they've been drinking. You know, it'd have been a long night. Philly fans, no. frustrating way to end it. Let's hear WIP. This comes from Shirley. We had that game tied. We had that game tied. You're talking about a, a man that's crippled on his leg, can barely walk, can barely run. Defense, y'all couldn't stop this man from running down there. And then the special teams, I'm sorry. I'm sorry, Howie, you the man. But Howie, please fix special teams. We've been crying about it all season long. Now they came back and it bit us. There was no way that man should have got all the way down into the four-yard line. No way at all. Angelo, I'm just beyond upset. Mm-hmm. Angelo, I'm beyond upset. We, that I man was crippled on the field. <laughs> Shirley's still going through it. All right, last one. Let's hear from Mike. Mike, how do you, how are you feeling about the Eagles losing in the Super Bowl? We didn't play a dang quarterback worth a damn. And the second we do, Jonathan Gannon tucks his tail between him, his legs and is scared to call a defense. How do you get burned on the same play two times in a row? Why are your eyes off the, uh, the receiver if you're in man coverage? James Bradbury and Avante Maddox on the very next defensive play you had the chance. Same thing. Mike, I'm hearing the pain in your voice. <laughs> yeah, Mike. Yeah, I heard it too. Pain in your voice. Yeah, we all heard it, Mike. There is nothing better than Eagles fans coming off of a painful, painful loss. The the craziest part, and I listened to probably two hours of Philly sports talk this morning. The craziest part, people here are more mad about the officiating than they are in Philly. I'm not kidding. They brought it up like twice in two hours. They are so mad at Jonathan Gannon and the defense giving up 38 points. They're barely even discussing the officiating in Philly. 
In Philly, they barely care. They held them to 13 minutes of possession time in the first half yeah. and were complaining. I'm surprised only one caller brought up the special teams and the one that we heard because you listen to sure. a lot more yeah, of it. There, but there were like 27 of them. But like <laughs> one out of those brought up special teams because special teams was probably about the biggest indicator of that game, be not being able to stop Kadarius Tony, but to blame the defensive coordinator. And I'm also surprised nobody complained about the turf. Uh, usually people would complain about those conditions and not one person. I, th- so, yeah, the, the turf was bad last night. I mean, you had guys changing into like their third pair of cleats in the game. Can I can I give a little criticism to Nick Sirianni? Because I thought overall he was pretty darn good yesterday. I thought, it, I thought he did a good job yesterday as just game management, especially the first half. He was excellent. He was awesome. Second half, I thought he got away from like who the Eagles are. So fourth and six from the Kansas City Chiefs 15-yard line. At the time, the Eagles are up 27-21. They decide to kick the field goal yeah, in that spot. Yeah, I thought spot. that too. Fourth and six, I, I understand that's a long way to go. They Third and 11 previously, they got the five yards and they set up fourth and six. Did you guys think they should have gone for it at the time? Because I did. I thought they should have gone for it on fourth down there. I told my dad and cousin who I was watching the game with, I said, they're going for it here. And they're like, no, they're not. They're going to kick the field. I said, why? You've gone for fourth downs this entire game. You went on for a fourth down on your 40-yard line, and you converted it. I felt like if they kicked the field goal there, the next time they touched the ball, they would be down. Mm -hmm. You go up 27-21 in that spot by kicking the field goal. I I thought Mahomes was going to take – I didn't think they could stop him after what we had seen in the previous possession. This is right at the beginning of the third quarter. That was jam the knife into the brain of the opponent moment, and they didn't do it. See, I I got the 15. Yeah, that's so you've got a thing. chance to say, even if you don't get it here, you're still up 24 21 and the Chiefs are getting the ball at their own 15. And your defense line. had played very well up, up to, to that, that point. point. Yep. See, I, I didn't mind kicking the field goal in that situation because I thought fourth and six was too long to go for it in that scenario. And also, because I, I kind of had the same mindset as you as, okay, I don't know if they're going to be able to stop the Chiefs. But if I kick the field goal and they go down and score, it's still a one point game compared to being a four point game if I don't convert on it. So I didn't mind them going away from the aggressive nature. If it was fourth and one, and they kick the field goal, sure. I'd be on here saying something different. But I think fourth and six, different story. I don't mind settling for the field goal there. Fair enough. I, I thought because of the way that Jalen Hurts had played, he, he was just so good in that game. Absolutely. I, I would have put it in his um, in his hands and, and seen what happened. Uh, but I get it. That, that one was more defensible. I thought the one where they really messed up was the punt that ended up in Kadarius Toney returning at 65 yards for the longest punt return in Super Bowl history. Fourth and three. This is you. This is Philly, man. All year long, when you get into these short situations, especially game potentially on the line, you're going for it in that spot. It's on your own side of the 50. You're at your own 32-yard line, so it is super risky. I am not trying to take that away. It it is. You got 10 and a half minutes left, and you're down by one at this point in time. Again, I thought if they kicked that ball there, and it didn't matter if it was a Kadarius Toney long punt or if it was the Chiefs just going on another drive— I didn't think they could stop the Chiefs' offense at that point. I thought it was a mistake to punt in that spot as well. Giving the ball back to Patrick Mahomes, I thought the Chiefs would even go for two, and they would make it a two-possession game. I thought it was a miss by Andy Reid to not go for two when they went up with the extra point going up by eight. I thought that was a, a bad decision by him, too. Proved to be a problem because the Eagles did end up scoring again, getting the two-point conversion. Did you think in that spot, 
fourth and three, ten and a half minutes to play on your own 32. Did you think they should go for it there? No, that one I could understand punting on. Fourth and three on your own 32, and at that point, Kansas City did have a lot of momentum. I would have been a little concerned on that play uh, just because, man, that would have been a massive momentum switch if you go for it, don't convert, and then Kansas City's got an easy path to the end zone. That one, I was okay with a decision. Yeah, I was okay with that one too because I – Though I can understand the argument of, well, if we give them the football back, they're going to score. My hope would be that if I'm kicking the ball and it was fielded at the uh, 30 of Kansas City, is that I'm going to force them to go down the field, and at best maybe we don't stop them and force a punt, but we force a field goal. Right. I I thought the punt was the right decision. You just special teams didn't play well. And plus, if you fail on that, then also Casey's already right there in field goal range. I at least want the chance to potentially stop them on their own end of the field, even though it probably wasn't likely. I still like the idea of punting that ball. I thought that would be too risky to go for it. I thought they just got away from their identity. That's been the Eagles' identity all season long is in these short-yarded situations, there was nobody better by a wide margin than the Eagles. And you've got Jalen Hurts. You've got the RPO game, which had been pretty successful for them all day long. You've got two wide receivers that were just dominating the Chiefs. And you got Dallas Goddard, who had been super effective in the game as well. Not going for it on fourth and three. I, more than anything else, more than the referees, more than anything, I, I thought that was the spot where those two situations, go, kicking the field goal, not going for it on fourth down, not being aggressive the way that they were the vast majority of the season, I think that is where the Eagles ultimately lost that game, along with, of course, Jonathan Gannon, who every Eagles fan wants to run out of town uh, not playing. City can't get along. The city hates each other. Can we hear that one one more time? This Who's is the only. That? Was it Oliver? Was it? Was yeah, that the, was one, the last fanatic guy I caller too? Oh no! Yeah, the fanatic one. We hate each other. Yeah. We need it. The only thing we can agree on in this city is that we bleed great. Coming up in 15 we minutes, we'll hit the rewind. Other. But next, Mizzou just had one of their best wins over the last decade. What does it mean for them in the short and long term? We'll talk about it next year on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. East is inbounding. No timeouts. You got Golston. Couple of dribbles. He's got to shoot. Two seconds. Let's it go for the win. And it looked like he got it off. Alongside Alex Ferrario and Tanner Hendrickson, I'm Brandon Kylie. That's what it sounded like on SEC Network as the Missouri Tigers, yet another buzzer beater coming from DeAndre Golson. It's the second of the year. First one came against UCF. That was in a neutral site game. This one coming on the road against Tennessee, who came into the game ranked sixth in the country. By the way, that's what it sounded like in the Blues press box that night, too, because there was like a row of us watching it, and everyone went, oh! Dude, that's one of the coolest finishes that I've seen in a Mizzou game. Oh, yeah. I've watched a lot of Mizzou basketball in my life. That's just about as good as it gets. So let's start with kind of how we got to that place. Missouri was up by 17 points in the second half. They had this game put away, and then the fouls started coming in a in a wave. It it was like an avalanche. <laughs> Mizzou ended up getting into, or the, the Mizzou had so many fouls that Tennessee was into the bonus about four minutes into the second half, completely altered the way that they were able to play. Kobe Brown gets the four fouls. They've got just foul trouble up and down the lineup. They're not getting rebounds once again. The shots aren't falling the way that they were in the first half. Tennessee goes on this crazy run early in the second half. And then down the stretch, it was it felt clear to me at least, oh man, they're going to end up losing this game. 
got a couple of minutes left, and it, it felt like Tennessee had just completely taken over. And then suddenly, Tennessee's at the line with about five seconds left in the game. They missed the front end. And then on the second free throw, Missouri, no timeouts left at this point in time, so it's important that this happened. He misses, but they also have a lane violation. So Missouri is taking it out from underneath their own basket with four seconds to get up the court. DeAndre Golson gets it, and he ends up chucking it up and makes the three to win on the road in Tennessee. Alex, it's the first time that Missouri's won an, uh, against a top 10 ranked opponent on the road. True road game since 2012. I believe this was the best Missouri win since joining the SEC. Full stop. Just the flat out best win that they've had since joining the SEC. What we have seen so far this year from Dennis Gates and this Missouri squad, man, I, I don't know how you could possibly inspire more confidence in a coach than him assembling this team and then putting together these kinds of results in year one. Yeah, and to see the amount of ranked opponents that they have beaten, the one that gets me is Tennessee was 11-1 and this season on their home court, and Mizzou has not been a good road team this year, and they won that game. Now, yeah, you know what? You did cough up the lead and a pretty significant lead, but the fact that you were able to fight back and win that one, I I mean, I I was all aboard Dennis Gates a couple of games ago, but it's gotten to the point now where, I mean, you're looking at what he is doing and wondering how he is doing it, and you're just getting the all-around commitment from that roster. Even impactful players who have missed a game or so, you've been without Mosley for a pretty significant amount of time, but somebody big is stepping up for him each and every night, which has been impressive. That's another one. Mosley not playing on Saturday as well like you you were without Mosley and Trago million so two scholarship players going into that one uh, you ended up losing a decent amount of your bigs because of the foul trouble that they had in the game Modiara fouls out in the game you had uh, a guy that came over from Cleveland State that's getting four minutes and hit a huge free throw down the stretch and it's the entire rotation that's finding a way to make an impact on the game so it, just a super impressive all-around performance by Mizzou and now you sit at 19 and six, right on the outside looking in of the top 25 nationally. And Alex, as I look at their resume compared to some of the other teams that are a decent amount in front of them, based on a lot of the bracketology reports that you see out there, like Andy Katz has his that he just put out in his bracketology. He's got Missouri as an eight seed. He's got Rutgers as a six seed. Let me go through their two resumes real quick for you guys. Missouri's 19 and six on the year. Rutgers 16 and nine. Missouri against quad one opponents, four and six. So is Rutgers. Missouri against quad two opponents, four and oh. Rutgers four and two in those games. Missouri against quad three opponents, three and oh. Rutgers one and one in those games. And then against quad four opponents, Missouri eight and oh. Rutgers seven and oh. Missouri has a better resume right now than Rutgers. And if they continue going on this type of a path, I think you're going to see Missouri with the ceiling of getting up to a five or a six seed in the tournament. If you had asked me this two, three weeks ago, I would not have seen that as a real possibility for them. But this win opens up a lot for them going into the tournament um, conversations. Yeah, and I was telling you in the commercial break, Andy Katz, as you mentioned, puts together that bracket, just this uh, early predictions. And like an eight seed now, if you get a five seed at best going into that, 
it sets up an interesting, and it depends on kind of where you're at and the teams around you, but it sets up an interesting path for a Mizzou team that could potentially make some type of run. I mean, the most we thought a couple of weeks ago was maybe this team just gets in and wins one game, but man, if, if you can beat Tennessee on the road, you can win. That's what I'm saying. In the tournament. And they've played a couple of other opponents pretty darn close uh, in going all the way back to that Kansas game that got away from them. They've been a different team since that Kansas game, so uh, it's an interesting team that could potentially, and I guess if you're a five seed, you're not really bringing up the Cinderella story, but it's a team that could maybe make some type of run that nobody was expecting. Iowa State's a four seed in yeah. his in the Andy Katz latest projections. Missouri beat them. Yep. Um, Tennessee, I would assume, is probably a two seed. I think they were in a this. One, They're a three a seed three. in this. Illinois Missouri just probably beat them. a five or yeah, they six. were a seven. I thought uh, oh, Illinois a, a five seed they five? in this, and Missouri beat them. I mean, you're talking about. The types of teams that you would have to beat in the tournament if you're going to make a run to the Sweet 16 or beyond. Missouri's shown an ability to do it. Not consistently, but they've shown the ability to be able to get some of those wins. And when you get into the tournament setting where these teams aren't able to prepare for that press that Missouri plays and prepare for the number of defensive schemes that they're going to throw out there, man, they're going to be a a really compelling matchup once we get to tournament time. I, I thought before that win yesterday that they had a chance to be a team that could surprise us and get to the Sweet 16 because when they get hot, they're just unbel- they're just tough to stop, and they can play that press defense, as you mentioned. I do think they'll end up falling between that 7 and 10 seed range. I do think that's what it's going to be. I that think the right. ceiling probably will be that 5-6, as you're talking about, and they're going to have a chance to add on some more wins, too. Now, their schedule, they don't have any ranked teams left on their schedule, but Auburn's got a lot of respect across the country. They're at Auburn on, tomorrow, uh, and then you're going to get into SEC tournament play where you could run into more seed teams and build that resume even more. So I think they'll end up in that 7-10 range. Even before that win, I, again, I, I do think they're a team that can go on a run because they have the formula to do it. They, now, they do struggle to rebound, and when Kobe Brown gets in foul trouble, they're in for a yeah. world of hurt. But they've had the formula all season long to where they can force turnovers and they can hit threes. And if you do that in an NCAA tournament... The ceiling, you could go far. We've seen a lot, of, a lot of those Cinderella teams that yeah, we talk about, like uh, last year St. Peter's, who went on that run. I think that was last year. Yeah. Uh, what was they the were, Middle Tennessee made a run? Weren't they a yeah, three point team and, too? And they were a great three point shooting team. If you just get hot from behind the arc, it's tough to kind of slow down those teams. And if you're the lower seed, there's no pressure on you. Like if they're a uh, seven seed in round two, say they run into whoever the two may be. I think you said Tennessee's a two. I don't think that would happen, but say it was. There's more pressure on them than there is Missouri. If Missouri gets hot, they can go on a run potentially. So I, I think there's a decent chance. Would it shock me if Missouri goes on a deeper run than Illinois? No, because they've got the shooting to do it. Illinois doesn't have three-point shooting. That's why I think they're going to be in trouble when they get to the NCAA tournament. Uh, speaking of Illinois, I I do appreciate this because it could have gone awry earlier on in the season once you got to that northwestern game and you lose that one on the road and you got the coach coming out saying we need better leadership he's making the raspberry voice thing when asked about the leadership of shannon and he's he's talking about how they've got different directions that they all are trying to go in with the transfers versus the guys that have been there for a while it it was very clear there was infighting going on within the team and this could have become one of those disaster seasons for illinois where it just goes off the rails and there's no way to get back on track Brad Underwood found a way to get this thing back on track. They ended up winning four straight, including a win against Michigan State. And then this past weekend, getting that win against Rutgers, that's a big one. That's a quad one win for them. Uh, Rutgers is a, a very good team. I mean, ask Purdue about them. And you were able to do it with the specific formula, the identity that this Illinois squad has started to develop. This is a defense first. We are going to defend you. And we are going to hope that we get just enough from one of our stars to be able to get out of this thing with a win. 
And that's been enough lately for them. It's not perfect. I don't think they're one of the 10 or 15 best teams in the country. Like I thought at one point, maybe they could become, but they're a pretty good team that at this point knows exactly who they are. And I appreciate that about them. Yeah. I'm impressed that they were able to get out of this. Cause I remember after that Northwestern loss, I said it was time to hit the panic button because they were in crisis mode. And as you said, since then they've gone seven and two in conference play in a really good conference in the big 10. They've got eight teams in the top uh, 50 in net rankings. Wow. I saw this morning. So, the fact that they've been able to kind of find a way through this and they've been relying on kind of the grad transfers, that's where I think the issue was early in the year, too, was there was a lot of push and pull of here's how the grad transfers want to play, here's how the freshmen want to play, and here's how the guys that have been in the program like Coleman Hawkins want to play. And as you said, Brad Underwood's did a nice job to get them all pushing in the same direction, knowing, hey, we got to be great on the defensive end of the floor. And whoever gets hot for us in that game, like over the weekend it was Coleman Hawkins going for 18 points. Typically it's been Mike Myers or Taron Shannon's been the guy. And deciding, okay, we're going to go with that, and and they've kind of gone back a little bit to having more of a big man mentality. Danger's with Danger, game changer for him. Danger's, and that's how they played last year. With uh, it's not the same way because Kofi Coburn was just a man among boys. But I I think they finally got back to more of that identity of Underwood wants to play. Where okay, we've got a big man. We're not going to space it out like they did early on in the year, and we're going to play defense and get back in transition. And and they've been playing well of late. I, I don't think they can go on a deep run in the tournament because I don't think they have the shooting to do it. But they can definitely keep. A team that's a high-scoring team like a Missouri and try and keep them at bay and give themselves a shot. Illinois back in action tomorrow on the road at Penn State. That's one of those games that is sneaky tough because it's on the road. Uh, so it'll be interesting to see what they look like in that one. Missouri also on the road tomorrow at Auburn. There's nothing sneaky about that one. Winning at Tennessee gives you a little bit of wiggle room. This is an expected loss that if you're able to pick up a win, now we're talking about Mizzou in a totally different light once again and keep raising the ceiling on what this season could be. He's Alex Ferrario. That's Tanner Hendrickson. I'm Brandon Kiley. We'll hit the rewind coming up next. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. Let's run it back with a daily rewind on BK and Ferrario. Brought to you by Stewart's American Mortgage. Google the bagel loan. Featuring zero fees and zero closing costs. today's show be sure to check it out on the podcast page 101 espn.com the free 101 espn app is where you can find it it's all presented by dobbs tire and auto centers by the way i had a nice day yesterday when it came to betting my betting on the season though was atrocious and i'm gonna fulfill my punishment for losing one of those weeks one of the many in our pick'em challenge by taking the polar bear plunge coming up this saturday huge thanks to special olympics of missouri for helping to coordinate this uh, you can also take the plunge by signing up for the polar plunge on saturday at creve core lake you can help support local special olympics missouri athletes get all the details at 101 espn.com Alex, before we get out of here, hit the BK and Ferrario rewind here. You're, when you think back to yesterday's Super Bowl, say it's a decade from now, what's the thing that you're going to most remember about that game? You did most remember because you said what you least remember will be Rihanna performing at halftime, didn't you? Of course, you? because you don't like Rihanna. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Uh, most remember, it's one of two things, which I'm breaking the rules here. It's either Pat Mahomes solidifying greatness, if he didn't already do it, 
But I think what I'm going to remember is Jalen Hurts putting himself on the map as a franchise quarterback for Philadelphia and their success from that Super Bowl performance. Because I was still questioning him up until last night. I think it was fair. Because the team didn't really go out there and dominate, and even in the NFC Championship game. That was more of a Miles Sanders game than a Jalen Hurts game. And uh, really, it was th- their defense was too good for the opponents that they were going up against, yeah. and all they knew they needed to do was lean on him. Yep. Lean on him for four and quarters, we're going to score line. 30 points, and mm-hmm. we're good to go. Yeah, but that would that that, that to me is going to be remembered from now as, as Jalen Hurts' is coming up party. That's exactly where I was going to go. As if Hurts ends up kind of going the trajectory that I think he's going to go, I'm going to circle this Super Bowl and say this is when Jalen Hurts put himself on the map and potentially said the NFC is going to be going through me in Philadelphia for years to come. Yep. I, I think that was my biggest takeaway in terms of how I'm going to remember the Super Bowl because, again, last night, I, in my honest opinion, I thought Hurts was better than Mahomes for a big chunk of that game, if not for the whole game. So I, I think it is going to – and it's not taking anything away from Mahomes because I agree. It's a little, it, last night's played win. one of the best statistical Super Bowls that we've ever seen. Yeah, and, and he used his legs. He was able to throw the ball in those tight windows like the Goddard pass that we talked about, which we couldn't believe got in there. I think if we're looking back on this Super Bowl in 10 years, it's probably because we're saying, man, Jalen Hurts has been running through the NFC, and it's unbelievable, and it really started back in 2023 when he lost to Mahomes in the Super Bowl. Just because you guys both went there for what it's worth, this is not me being a homer, I would have gone in that direction. But what I will say, um, just since you guys went in that direction, I'll say that it's going to be remembered as the Chiefs winning the Super Bowl they weren't supposed to win. This was the season that they were supposed to take a little bit of a step back. They reset their cap sheet by trading away Tyreek Hill and went super young. They had, I think it was like seven or eight rookies that saw meaningful snaps in that game yesterday. This rookie class was huge for them. Them going out and getting Juju Smith-Schuster, who had a pretty good day yesterday. Uh, them finding defensive players like Justin Reed that are actually willing to tackle, unlike Tyron Matthew from a year ago, who missed every tackle in the playoffs, I'm pretty sure. like That, that was huge. That, that and felt a little personal. <laughs> so it, it reminds me of the Patriots team in 2018 that beat the LA Rams. That, that was one of the worst Super Bowls that we've seen in recent years, but... They were able to overcome the Chiefs in that one when the Chiefs were at the very beginning of the Patrick Mahomes era, and they won a Super Bowl that I don't think many expected them to at that point. So that's how I think it'll be remembered is the Super Bowl early on in Mahomes' career that kind of set him over the top because it was the one that they weren't supposed to get. For Alex Ferrario and Tanner Hendrickson, I'm Brandon Kiley. We'll talk to you guys tomorrow at 11 a.m. The Fast Lane's coming up next. I think they've actually got the guys back here on 101 ESPN. We hate each other. We need it. The only thing we can agree on in this city is that we bleed green. You've been listening to the BK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN.